0: Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today I'm joined by James Dalma, and we are going to go into a few things. So we're, this is gonna be our last installment reviewing Tesla's AI Day 2022. Previously, we did um, Optimus, we did Dojo, and we did the first half of FSD. And in this video, we're gonna cover the second half of Tesla's FSD presentation at AI Day. Uh, before that, I wanted to talk with James about some more general kind of bigger picture FSD um, topics um, to kind of lead into this, get, to give us more context. So. Um, First off, James, welcome back. Um, how have you been?
1: Great. It's great to see you again. It'll be nice to uh, to wrap this up. It's I yeah. you know, when we did the first AI day, we, we didn't actually finish everything, and I've always kind of regretted not closing it off, so it's going to feel yeah. good to at least get this one in the bag.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, super valuable. I think um, the more we dive into what Tesla's doing, um, the more... Um, I'm able to track, but other people are also able to track their progress because they can understand what Tesla is doing. So the next AI day, they're like, oh, okay, Tesla is moving ahead. They are progressing, developing. So it's uh, super immensely helpful. Um, all right. So Elon Musk was interviewed by Ron Barron and he was asked why invest in Tesla by an uh, attendee. And Elon's main point was um, FSD and Optimus. So he was saying FSD is going to make cars five times as useful or valuable, and it's going to have an insane impact on Tesla's valuation. Um, And then he talks about Optimus as having kind of like this unlimited potential, you know, um, in terms of human labor. So I wanted to ask your your take on this. Um, When you hear Elon saying FSD could lead to a five times improvement in its usefulness or value and how valuable it is, and Elon saying it's going to have an insane impact on perhaps it's, uh, the company value. What's your kind of take? What's your impressions and thoughts? Yeah, I totally
1: that? agree. I mean, it's that's my whole investing thesis, right? I got into, like, I initially became really invest in, interested in Tesla as an investment because I liked what they were, this is back in uh, 2015, 16, 17, right? That I really liked what they were doing on this. And I, so I totally agree. It, uh, that, that whole five times uh, v- valuation thing is this simple observation that cars spend most of their time sitting around. Most cars, most of the time, aren't doing anything. And the value that they provide is moving stuff around, moving people around, moving goods around, you know, on the road, they're providing value sitting in the parking lot. They're providing negative value. They're taking up real estate, right. Without, without providing any utility. And a lot of this hardware is just sitting there sort of amortizing away. You know, it, there's a time value associated with the money that gets invested in these things, as well as like wear and tear that, that, that wears them down. And right. And you recover that time value by making better use of, of the vehicle. And you get more total use out of the vehicle too, especially in the case of an electric vehicle, because, um, you know, you could say if you have a gas vehicle, well, you're only going to get hundred thousand miles or you're only going to get 200,000 miles out of it anyway. So whether you do that over two years or four years, doesn't really make a big difference, but with an electric vehicle, you know, you do, there's plenty of potential for them to, to get a million miles of useful service life or on that scale, at least there's plenty of evidence that, that it's going to get there. And, and, you know, for, if you don't have the kind of heavy utilization that a taxi cab has you never get to a million miles like individual owners of cars they don't get to a million miles because the cars age out not you know before they before they wear out so absolutely having the car on the road more is is definitely going to extract more value for every you know piece of metal you stamp every battery that you manufacture you're going to get more to value and and yeah 5x that's probably a pretty good guess i mean you could make the case that it was 3x you could make the case that it was 10x So 5x is a fine number to talk around for that yeah i yeah it's yeah, i it, it, tesla doesn't have to change what they make yeah. in terms in material terms it, it it's just that what they make becomes incredibly more valuable and there's there's actually this other component of it which i think is really important that is easy to forget when you're at the investor end is that you know tesla's goal it could be better described as getting gas cars off the road as opposed to getting, you know, the point of putting electric vehicles on the car is to get the gas cars off the road so that you, so that you stop, you know, generating the emissions, so that you stop being dependent on this, you know, energy source, which is going to deplete. And you know, it, right now, Tesla's ability to do that is totally limited by how, how fast they can manufacture cars. And they, there's no reasonable way for them to suddenly or quickly make two times as many cars, five times as many cars. I mean, they're ramping as fast as they can. So if there's a thing that you can do that makes like every single car, you know, right now... One EV takes one gas car off the road. But if you can do a thing to the EV that makes it, so one EV takes five gas cars off the road, that's a, that's a multiplier you cannot get. And then it, like, Tesla could spend $50 billion building factories and that kind of stuff, and they couldn't achieve that. So getting getting FSD working is a huge win for Tesla's objectives, not just from a financial standpoint, but from their mission objective also.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, think, and,
0: uh, I think one thing is, is with FSD is um, it seems like it's difficult for not just like analysts or people outside of the tech kind of angle, but even inside tech, people have so many different views, but people outside they're looking at this and they're looking at FSD as will this ever come? right? Like, and is it gonna be a 10 year thing or a 20 year thing? And who knows if Tesla is gonna be first or if there's gonna be 10 people around the same time. Um, so it seems like people like you are just to to the financial type of Wall Street, you know, observer. You're just such an anomaly. Or this view that you know Tesla's going to achieve FSD and have this um, advantage and be able to utilize their cars, let's say five times as much. It just seems such mm-hmm. like, such a foreign concept and idea that. I don't know no. how they can understand that. I mean, it just seems so mind-boggling. <laughs> it's, I'm not surprised that they
1: don't get it. There's, there's, a, there's, a much more, uh, fun, there's a much more basic thing about Tesla that people don't seem to get, which is really surprising to me. And that is, you know, there are some markets that are supply limited, just broadly speaking. You can be supply limited, you can be demand limited. Like the market, you know, prices and everything, they can be determined by the limits on how many can be made, you know, like concert tickets. You can only put so many people in the stadium. Like there's a production side limitation to that kind of stuff. Most consumer goods in the stable case are demand limited, right? Because production will catch up to demand and they become a commodity good and whatnot. And so the the conventional way of thinking about consumer goods is from the demand side, right? Um, so for instance, right now, like Tesla's totally production limited. They're going to be totally production limited for a really long time. And that's, that, that means certain things about the company and the market that it exists in and whatnot. But the thing is cars have been a demand limited business since like before living memory, you know, in this thing. So wall street analysts can't get their head out of the idea that Tesla's got to drive demand. You know, that their problem is they like the whole $20,000 car thing. Right. So. Mm. It, you know, if what if if Tesla just dropped the price of model threes, they're not going to sell anymore. They can't, they can't. It's, it's totally production limited, right? So, like, talking about anything other than increasing production is completely moot as far as, as, as the, the major parameters of the thing. And yet, most of the dialogue is still around oh, will there be enough demand? Is the demand going to drive off? They need to make the lower cost car. And Wall Street frequently looks at FSD as a demand driver thing. And it's not a demand driver, it's a production driver, it lets Tesla make effectively many times more cars with the same production base. Mm -hmm. Um, So and that's, that's really simple, and should be really easy to understand. And Wall Street doesn't get that. So I'm not surprised that it when you ask them to think about something that's even a little bit of a stretch, you know, that could be dismissed. You know as you know because fsd is it you know self-driving cars they're they're a novel phenomenon in the world it's not something the world has seen before like i i like to use that um you know the the example of like the wright brothers and airplanes right Mm -hmm. it's like it, it we've been talking about cars driving themselves for a long time 20 30 50 years depending on you know whether you're a futurist and you've been thinking about this stuff and they've always seemed pretty far away, like fusion or whatnot, that just like, and, and so self-driving cars, they get lumped into that same category of like, you know, jet, jet packs and flying cars and stuff like that, that, that is, is just this future thing and people don't really think of it as coming, you know, any, any time in their future, it's got that, that kind of feel to it. And it's hard to break out of that mindset of no, no, this really is a thing. It's really going to happen. Um, and it, it really is a thing and it really is going to happen. And I think what it's going to take to break, you know, pe- the opinions of people who aren't following it really closely, who aren't analyzing it really deeply out of that mold is they're just going to have to see it, right? They'll believe it when it's there. And like, and that's a thing that was also true of flight, right? I mean, the, the Wright brothers were literally flying planes for years. And the conventional wisdom was that it, you know, in most of the world, was that it didn't really exist. It was some kind of stunt. Like people yeah. didn't really believe the planes were flying. It wasn't until they actually went somewhere because, uh, you know, um, it was that Orville Wright was in Europe and he would fly the car. He would, fl- he would, you know, he was working on a plane at some airfield and he'd fly it out and fly it around in circles and then land it and tinker on it or something like that. And huge crowds would go and stand at the edge of the field and watch the thing fly because people didn't believe it, you know, even though they saw newspaper photos, even though they'd been hearing about it for years, Mm -hmm. because it just, you know, human flight had that thing where it's, you know, it's a dream. It's like this unachievable thing in the in the common thinking. And I think self driving cars have a bit of that to them. So what it's going to take to convince 90 plus percent of the public that it's a real thing is they're they're gonna have to ride in one, they're gonna have to see them. They're going to have to see the changes that they bring in the world, and then and and that'll happen. And, and until then, Wall Street they're not going to price it in,
2: because yeah, most
1: people yeah. just aren't going to believe it. But but yeah. it's going to happen for sure. Yeah, and it's going to happen soon. This is not twenty years away.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so I have a theory or perspective here. So um, it seems like um, when FSC or let's say Tesla's FSD is kind of below a certain safety threshold. It's not comfortable, let's say, for most people to, to, to sit in it. People just discount it as just completely like, you know, a uh, piece of junk. Um, but if it crosses a certain threshold where it's actually like decently comfortable to be in, um, it's manageable, it's like helps you out and stuff. It enters into an area where um, people start to register it as like, oh, this is something... Interesting, useful, helpful, and they're able to start tracking its improvement. Like before that, it's just revulsive, you know, the idea of it. Um, and I feel like we, we've entered this stage of actually it being a useful kind of comfortable, helpful tool in the past, let's say one year or so. And now the tracking people are able to track its improvement in a way where, you know, um, um, it's, it's becoming acceptable to see that, you know, it, it's improving and um, it just seems like this improvement in this stage we're in, it feels like it's just going to increase and get better and better quite fast, even though I think the end, like the goal, the goal of safety is, is such a ambitious and perhaps even far goal, but the improvements I think that we're gonna see are going to, um, I guess, Accelerate or surprise people in the next one year compared to, let's say, the past uh, one year. What, what are your thoughts on kind of like, you know, how people are going to be able to see the improvements, you know, over you know next? Yeah, uh, let's I've, say I've one said or for a really
1: years? long time. You have to drive it. It's, I mean, you have to just experience it to to really get a sense of what's going on. the The numbers kind of don't catch it. It's hard to come up with really good numbers that to. To convey the sense of what's going on, but you know, if, if you drive it and then you drive it again, I, you I really drive it, not like get a demo from somebody where you sit in the passenger and like, oh yeah, sure enough, he's not touching the steering wheel, like because that doesn't, that's giving you this very shallow understanding mm-hmm. of what's going on. But knowing, you know, seeing what it can do and what it can't do, what it's good at, what it's weak at, and how that changes over time, like you have to get behind the wheel, you have to let it do the driving. And you have to watch it over some window of time like a a year at a at a minimum and and Mm. so probably people who own the car and use it as a daily driver and who have fsd on it and use fsd a lot i think that i mean my my sense of the of the statistics that tesla releases right now is that most people who have fsd on their car are using it for less than 10 percent of the miles they drive and that might not be enough to really get a, a you know Cause you, you have to drive it until you're comfortable with it until you intuitively understand, you know, is if you're driving it and it's constantly surprising you, you know, because it's, it's, it's behavior, isn't complicated. If you drive it enough, you'll, you'll be able to tell everything it's going to do, right. Everything it's going to do wrong. Like you'll never be surprised by what's going on. And when you get to that stage of understanding, you will have intuited the, 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 the pace of improvement that it's got, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll see that. And it'll become, yeah. you know, obvious to you that, yeah that this to most people, anyway, it will be um, it, opinions vary, people respond to this stuff different ways. But um, I think that's the only way to really know at this to, to really, uh, you know, get, you know, the evidence that you need to really mm. sort of believe and understand that it's improving and understand the rate, we still have the problem that like, even if you use it a lot, you know, there's the question of how many, you know, in the March of Nines thing. how many nines do you need? Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, before it's going to cross that threshold where it can be a robo taxi, right? We're in the zone right now. Like I'm fully convinced that FSD is probably safer than people are right now. Many people will, <laughs> will violently disagree with that. I'm sure. But I think, you know, okay, on to, balance, to clarify
0: but, that you think yeah. that robo taxi by itself without human Oversight is safer than the average human, even no, right now. No, no, no. Okay. no. I'm the just saying a, a plus human, human
1: supervised FSD car okay, is safer than uh, than a human being, mm. you know, and this is on average. Like if you yeah, look at a big yeah. population of people and you get a billion miles or whatever the deal is, I think you're gonna find that FSD drivers, people using FSD in the city, they're having fewer accidents than mm. people who aren't using FSD and who are just driving the cars. And sure. that that so there's this other level that you get to. You know, where the less and less people, the more and more FSD does the driving and the less and less people do the driving, the more the overall statistics are reflective of FSD's capabilities and less, mm. you know, because one one appropriate criticism that people have of over-interpreting the accident statistics right now is that people will preferentially drive themselves in situations where they understand FSD is weak. Right. And so that sweetens the statistics a little bit too much. Right. If you specifically take off the table, the things that FSD is really bad at, then it's hard to compare it to humans driving every kind of situation. Like if the baseline is what is the human accident rate? Yeah, sure. So, th- you know, that's a legitimate criticism, but one of the, but the, that criticism gradually gets diluted as, FSD takes over more and more and more of the driving, right? It's, you know, it's 90, according to my <laughs> app stats, it's like 99% of my driving now. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are in that zone where it's like 90 plus percent of their driving. And, and now the statistics are starting to give you a real feel about how good it is versus 100% human driver versus, I mean, we don't have 100% FSD yet. You know, if you got 99% FSD, you're getting pretty close, but you're still not there. That last 10% can have a lot of stuff in it that's really important that still needs to be solved. And so those are nines, right? That we still have to add to the thing. So is it, you know, at what point is it 99.9%, 99.999%? Like how much of your driving does FSD have to be doing before you can look at the statistics and you can say, You can compare them to the human statistics and say, we're doing good. This is an apples apples comparison and the, and FSD is better. And that is a hard call to, to make. Right. And it's Elon has said a whole bunch of times that he thinks like that is going to happen this year. Um, And he's still saying that he thinks that is going to happen this year. Um, and it might, it's possible. I mean, the recent progress on the recent major releases has been impressive, uh, you know, we will see <laughs> what yeah. happens. My, my sense is it's getting pretty close. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, it, it, so I, I, there's, in the space of people who work on this stuff, and who understand the tech and who follow it closely, there's still a significantly a large, maybe a majority of, of, uh, you know, sort of people who understand the tech pretty well, who are skeptical that FSD is going to get there soon. Right. There's the space of people who think it's never going to happen has pretty much gone to zero. And the space of people who thought it was never going to happen, that was very, that was substantial as recently as maybe five or 10 years ago. So like, there's already been a lot of progress in reducing the skepticism in the, you know, machine learning, you know, the uh, community, but it hasn't, it hasn't gone to zero and it, you know, it won't go to zero until we have the cars out there. And even after you have the cars on the road, like some there have been some milestones that we've been passed. And you see people who predicted that that milestone wasn't going to be crossed will be cool quibble. Well, it's not actually doing it because this thing isn't actually, you know, completely independent or it's, Mm -hmm. they're not doing it the right way or something. Yeah. So the naysayers aren't going to go away really soon, but they're, you know, the voices suggesting it's not going to happen are definitely gradually diminishing. And and now it's kind of a contest between people who think it's 10 years away or five years away and people who think it's you know we'll see it in a year or two as yeah. opposed to people it, it used to be you know between it'll happen in 10 years and it'll happen in 50 years right so now we're down to like you know two versus 10. and uh and you know I, like i'm still in the two camp
0: mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: we're gonna see how it comes yeah. together i don't two, think to so,
0: within well, two years you're talking about um full self-driving by itself being safer yeah. than an average human being. Right? Robo taxi
1: is no human in the car. Yeah. Right. Mm. I mean, you, you can send the car to pick your kids up at school. You yeah. can send the car to whole foods to pick up the groceries and bring them mm. back. And it yeah. doesn't have to be somebody in the car. That's robo taxi. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, uh, that's, that's the technical demonstrator of robo taxi, uh, which is the capability exists and is reasonable to let the car do be completely unsupervised. But uh, you may not actually at that point, at the point in time when that becomes possible, you might still not have like millions of robo taxis because there's all of this other aspects of the taxi business itself that have to be resolved. Getting the app working, getting, Mm -hmm. you know, having the vehicles everywhere so that you can reliably get a ride and that kind of stuff. Those are other things that have to happen. They, They might take a little bit longer, but just the technical capability to build a vehicle that we understand to be, safe enough that you can let it go drive on the street with nobody behind the wheel kind
2: of. Yeah. Thing. Um, yeah no,
1: I, I still think that's a couple of years away. that yeah. the technical achievement, I think is a yeah. couple of years away. I think that people also uh, ha- express skepticism about how soon regulators will approve it. And I think, you know, that's also, a le- you know, a legitimate point of concern, because we, yeah. we don't we haven't seen any regulators approve these things my sense of the regulatory environment is that it's not gonna be that tough. They're not gonna be unreasonably critical or unreasonably strict. I think once the statistics are there, and in Tesla's case, the the statistics come relatively quickly. And we've talked about that in the past. Like if if you only have a thousand vehicles and you have a system that you think works really well, convincing regulators that your system is safe is hard because it's hard to rack yeah. up enough miles to do that. And so instead of just racking up the miles, you have to have this elaborate argument besides that, that has analyzed all these failure cases and you do all this supplementary testing and you prove it. Whereas the most convincing model that you can have to convince a regulator that it's available is just like, hey, we drove a billion miles, and we yeah. had this many problems, or we drove 10 billion miles, or we drove 100 billion miles. And this is how many problems we had. Cause that's, that's incredibly powerful. It doesn't require you, to like make any leaps of faith or have any mm. complicated arguments about it, all right? I, I think regulators understand that. And that's, that's a thing that Tesla's approach gets because they have a fleet, they'll get a lot of data. And so they'll, and so not only will they be able to convince regulators, they'll be able to convince themselves. They'll be able to move sooner with higher confidence towards allowing these systems to operate in the world because they themselves will have better data about just how many corner cases you know are yet to be resolved and how important they are
0: got it um so would you say let's say um uh second half of 2024 would you um is that a reasonable you think timeline that you might expect my model is
1: 2024 Okay, for, you know, some commercial utility Got of, it. uh, vehicles that, w- that are unsupervised say, mm. uh, and it. you know, we will see <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. how it goes, but it's,
1: the thing is, this is my, you know, 50, 50 kind of, uh, uh, model, you know, that, you know, there's, it, there's a better than 50% chance of, you know, it's so, you know, in the, in the downside scenario, there's 2026 and 2027 and 2028 mm. and all those. But gotcha. if I toss it, my toss a coin outcome, I think is like 2024 right now.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, wouldn't you think that like Tesla could start with these local jurisdictions that are more open to like Chandler, Arizona or other places? Yeah, I, th- I think they'll have to. Mm. I think that I think the initial regulatory environment when they want
1: to operate uh, systems that have nobody behind the wheel that they will find jurisdictions that are more uh open to that and they will be able to you know explore that functionality at some amount of scale in those kinds of jurisdictions in the beginning right that i I don't think that we get a scenario where like you know the nhtsa is yeah (laughs) you're you're fine. You just turn them all on. We've got no problem. Right. Yeah. They'll, they'll want yeah. to see some, you know, intermediate steps on that so that regulate regulators and the public, too. I mean, we, the public has to be convinced that this is a reasonable technology as well. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and there, there's some unreasonable voices out there that, you yeah. know, somehow we're going to have to figure out how to, to, uh, um, come to some kind of compromise with them about the you know, what the system has to be capable of doing and what it has to show it's capable of doing in order to you know, quell the outrage that we mm. have robots driving on the street.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so Elon also at this uh, Ron Barry interview, he was saying he doesn't see anyone even close to Tesla at being able to solve um, full self-driving generalized generalize yeah, generalized. Onto, yeah and
1: you know um, i would agree with that the the thing is the you know who else is working on a generalized approach right it uh most of the significant commercial players have decided that they would rather restrict the domain in an effort to try to get to market sooner mm-hmm. virtually all of them right and so when elon says generalize he's like taking a whole bunch of people off the table you know and that's a that's a fine thing to do i think tesla's goal is different than than cruises goal is and you know they have a different business model they have a different technical approach they have different trade-offs that they think are, are reasonable because they have different objectives i mean it, to, it, it they both want the cars to drive themselves but the, the question is to what purpose and in what mm. domain and for tesla that's different than it is for cruise
2: Mm, yeah, and I mean,
1: Tesla wants, you know, their goal is for the car to be able to do almost anything, you know, like 99.9% of what humans drive, they want, you know, a car to be able to drive, including yeah. ni- that that percentage of the domains and that percentage of the use cases.
0: Yeah. All right. So, okay, to, to summarize this argument by Elon Musk, he's saying full self-driving will enable these cars to be used, let's say, five times as much. Um, Tesla... At least in the race to generalize autonomy, is he thinks is in the far lead. Um, the next well, question for his is, use
2: case.
1: Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, in the next question is how can Tesla capture um, a good portion of that five times kind of usefulness or valuableness mm-hmm. of the car? Because um, it's one thing to say, "Hey, this car is five times useful," but it's another thing to get a person, let's say, to pay five times as much for that car, you know, when they're, let's say already scratching for, you know, their budget for, for a human driven car. So how does Tesla capture, you know, um, a lot of that extra value that full self-driving will bring? I, I like,
1: I don't know. I've thought about a couple of different scenarios, uh, for how you might go at doing that. And, uh, and I'm sure Tesla themselves is not sure. You know it's a new business model and it uh you know it i I think there's going to be some experimentation there's going to be some false starts and they'll make some adjustment as they get going but you know one thing that you can do you know the the brute force thing is you know the cars are three hundred thousand dollars now and if you want one you know if you want to justify buying a car that much you're going to have to be willing to like let it out as a taxi and in that scenario the cars with full self-driving that really, uh, realize their commercial potential, um, are the ones that get used in a fleet someplace they don't, you know, private individuals mm-hmm. don't get them. And in fact, I have a friend, like I've mentioned this once before I have this bet, like from 10 years ago, like his bet is that, is that when, when, you know, when full self-driving or self-driving becomes, uh, becomes a thing. That we're going to have this window of time where people who can build those cars, they won't sell them to private customers, right? So the value of self-driving, you know, in the long run, it's going to be like headlights. We put it on every car. It's a safety thing. It's not expensive, and everybody's got to have it. And it's not going to be, you know, those cars won't cost a million dollars, even though they'll they'll be, they, even though they'll be five times as valuable. Like all the cars will have it right? So the the value is, you know, when there's very few vehicles that can do it and it's good, like in the beginning, there's few vehicles that can do it and it's kind of sketchy because it's going to keep improving. There's not, you know, you don't go from like it's sketchy to it's perfect in one day or one week or one year, right? It'll continue to improve. And so, the the utility will continue to improve for a while, but there'll be this window in the beginning where it's incredibly valuable because the alternative is having a person drive versus having the car drive. So So the basis for the value is like, well, what does it cost to have a person do this instead of that? And that this is that window of time when the vehicles are five times as valuable as what they're competing with, which is vehicles that don't have this then as the market saturates as more, you know, it's one thing when there's a million of these vehicles, you have a certain kind of price point that you can achieve. And then when there's 10 million, you know, the value is starting to fall because you're starting to saturate the market. When there's 50 million of them, like if you have 50 million of them in the United States, you probably saturated the market for, for this. And so now the driver is the actual cost of producing the service in terms of what does it take to, what does it cost to make the car? What is it, what is the electricity cost and that kind of stuff. And that's the scenario where, you know, you call your robo taxi and it's 18 cents a mile to go any place that you want, like in, in the far thing. So, so so one, one scenario you can look at, and this is my friend's bet, is that in this window of time when they're maybe not as good, but the value is really high because there's no competition, that it's just not economical to sell, sell them to private individuals because you're wasting all this potential. If if a private individual wants to have this for themselves at home, well, you, there's there's like four cars worth of capacity that you're not going to realize. And this is one of the reasons why this whole idea that people could have a car and then some people could lend their car out when they weren't using it, like on the Tesla network. It, that's an interesting kind of intermediate case because it allows it it allows private individuals to try to capture enough of that value that they can justify the, the purchase price of course you're also going to have people who like bought in cheap who like bought FSD when it was like $15,000 right and then it, you know and they just contractually they have they have it for free for long enough that that they get a bargain and 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 uh, you know if if you can do taxis with the $15,000 FSD you know, starting two years from now or something, you'll, you'll make good money off of that during the lifetime of that vehicle before the license on it expires. So that's another scenario that you can have. That, that, so there's the totally commercial scenario. There's the, there's also the scenario where you you do financing or you have sort of restrictions on how people can use the stuff to try to make it more affordable in, in the short run to be able, you, you know, if you, if you want to be able to sell to private individuals. Another thing that Tesla could do is And I was interested to hear that they were making a dedicated robotaxi already because I, I sort of expected that eventually they would make a dedicated vehicle because what you want in a taxi is a little bit different than what you want on a private vehicle. You want more durability. You want, you want to be easy to clean, (laughs) you know, you don't want to worry about dings and that kind of stuff. You want to, you, you want something that's more of a utilitarian vehicle and less of like your pride and joy sort of uh, kind of vehicle. So I, I'd always imagine them you know, assuming that the cyber truck manufacturing approach of like making a structural body, uh, works out and is less expensive, like making robo taxis that way seems to make a lot of sense to me. So like, a Mm. having a robo taxi built, that looks kind of like a cyber truck, whatever Mm. in a sedan form, um, which is really durable and you don't have to put paint on it and it's inexpensive. Uh, and you've target that at the, you target that at the taxi space. So, so Tesla has this window of time where they're making a t- commercially targeted Robo taxi vehicle and then they're still selling uh, EVs to uh, private owners and then as as a company they can decide how they want to allocate the resources between those two um, you know depending on how ex- you know how fast the technology uh, is adopted and how quickly it's able to take over lots of use cases because you know, there's different scenarios. You could see it spreading quicker in some scenarios and slower in other scenarios. So Tesla has the option of, of, because they're in my opinion is they have to hang on to the private uh, market. Because once the robotaxi boom is over, once you get through that, you know, five year window of time or whatever it is, that they're super useful and super valuable, but still rare enough. I mean, and the rarity is one of the things that makes them example at the at the tail end, the marginal buyer, once again, is the private owner. And so you don't want to completely drop your private you know, vehicle business and then have to resurrect it seven years later. It's, it's a lot smarter to maintain your private vehicle business through that window. And so the trick for Tesla is like, how do you balance that? Like how much of it is private vehicles that we're going to let have FSD and how much of it is robo taxis that are going to be FSD. And then when they, when they offer the Tesla network service or whatever they end up calling it, like, do you let private owners also use it? Um, You know, in some scenarios, it makes sense to do that. In some scenarios, it makes less sense than operating your taxi fleet with your purpose built taxi vehicles. So there's a lot of variables. And uh, I suspect that they have a plan and that that plan has changed, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly in the beginning, their plan was, we're going to build a lot of Model 3s. We're going to turn them on one day. And then everybody will just like lend their Model 3 to the network. Um, and I think that has changed because it's taken longer to, for the software to mature to the point where they could do this. And so they've had the opportunity to accelerate the plan to make a dedicated vehicle. And, uh, you know, it's possible that by the time the software is ready, they have the dedicated vehicle relative ready to roll off the line. And from, from, a sort of, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know, legal risk standpoint, it might make sense for Tesla to say, you know, we're only going to do the Robotaxi in the beginning on our dedicated Robotaxis, because then they take all the liability. They don't have to, you know, if, if, mm. if, if a Tesla owned Robotaxi gets a ding in it yeah. or is involved in some minor accident or something, it's a different set, it's a different kind of sort of uh, set of exposures and customer experience and whatnot than if it's a customer vehicle so yeah,
0: interesting um yeah fascinating stuff so you think this uh next generation let's say robo taxi platform um so you think it could be kind of Cybertruck inspired
1: so, that would be my guess that, I, really? I, I thought we talked about this once before and i predicted that it would be Cybertruck style yeah yeah um, i think we might i think figured. that's totally the thing to do you know, when you ride a train, you look at the yeah. inside of like, you know, you get on a subway train or something like that. You know, everything is stainless steel inside and the seats yeah. aren't super comfortable, but they're really easy to clean and they're not easy to damage. And, you know, that it has that you get inside an elevator and it doesn't have, you know, seats with nice upholstery or anything like that because it's, yeah. it's more utilitarian. And uh, the, I mean, I'm talking about the inside of the thing, but the outside, yeah. you know, it's the same thing. You don't want to have to clean it a lot. You don't want to have to worry about it getting dings, you know. Uh, so yeah, I think the and you want it to be super inexpensive. And actually, I think uh, I think having a cyber truck. You know, manufacturer style robo taxi is actually kind of a feature because yeah. it looks that's like true. a taxi. Right? <laughs>
2: like,
1: you don't have to paint it yellow. If you yeah, see that yeah. weird sort of, you know, polygon-shaped stainless steel sedan going in, or you're like, "Hey, yeah. taxi!" You know, that's true. You're, yeah. You know, it's a yeah. uh, it's it, it sticks it's a feature, out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um,
0: how far do you think um, is it realistic for Tesla to like get inspiration from the whole, let's say? Diecast hot wheel model where, you know, you're just like sticking a few pieces together um, like how far, one? yeah. Like how far do you think that uh, is as kind of the inspirational model to kind of simplify manufacturing where you're doing it, I mean, is it possible? Do you think to do even a single piece, you know, bottom casting? Um, I don't, somehow, I would or? say I'm, I'm not, I
1: don't, it, we're, we, we're going to have to see how, well the origami the stainless steel origami thing works out mm. um it's it's not i mean you know it's a tra- the idea of like die casting the whole body is attractive um die casting you know it has a scaling issue it gets a lot harder to die castings as you go up in scale because of how fast the shot has to be in into the die and there's all there's all kinds of technical restrictions on that kind of stuff so it may be that shooting the body is a bridge too far and the other thing is that a lot of the low-hanging fruit in terms of what you gain from the castings, you get from those that front portion, the back portion, where you have a lot of attachment yeah. points and yeah. and uh, and relatively little material compared to you know the structural uh, complexities associated with things like doing the top half of the vehicle in in a, as a die cast, I think is a lot less. So folding sheet metal to do the top part, of, you know, if if you can significantly drive down the cost of doing that. You know, which I think that one of the advantages of the Cybertruck approach is, you know, you're scoring and folding metal and then you're doing a relatively small number of structural welds and it doesn't have a lot of layers or a lot of pieces. It Potentially, it could drive the cost down enough that you wouldn't even gain that much even if you did die cast the whole, even if you did die cast the whole uh, top of the vehicle. Right now, doing the two castings with the structural pack in between, like that's pretty optimized. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, you know... The, you, you, There'll always be this point where you know your volume is high enough that it, that it's worth spending a lot of money to get another ten percent out of the price. Right. But you know, I I feel like if they get the structural pack with the front and back castings and they get this origami origami stainless steel body on the top of it, man, they've made a lot of progress already. I don't know if they need to take a lot of risk. Yeah. On I mean,
0: what's your take when further? Elon? What's your take when Elon on the last conference call says for their robotaxi platform? Um, next gen, they're going to, they're focusing on half the effort, half the cost. Half, I mean, this whole word effort is a little bit interesting. Like, what's your take on that? Is it the time it takes to make the car? Is it the number of parts? Is it the number of processes? Is it the, the space on the floor? Is it everything just combined? Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: It, 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 you know, it's half of everything that you have to spend uh, in, in order to to make the vehicle, right? So it, I, basically, if you if you spend the same amount of money on the factory and you get twice as many cars out, mm-hmm. because you have the same number of labor hours going in, you use, have the same footprint, you're spending the same amount of money on hardware and whatnot, and you get twice as many cars, that's half, that's half wow. as much. Huh. I mean, that's And pretty... I think he described it that way at one point, just like, you know, yeah. we want to get twice as many cars for, yeah. for what we're doing. And that's probably the right way to, to think about it. it. It's not, I think from, you know once again we tend to think unfortunately because the car business has been demand constrained for so long it's very hard to break out of the demand constrained mindset i mm-hmm. think tesla is not thinking about this twenty thousand dollar vehicle from the standpoint of oh that'll save us when we run out of people who can afford a fifty thousand dollar model three like i don't think they're thinking that at all i think they're thinking how do we get twice as many cars out of the next factory? <laughs> right? It's like, literally, we're gonna build a factory and we want twice as many cars out of it. So you think in those terms, like, what do we need yeah. to do so that for the same amount of effort, we get twice as many cars? And that's a production constrained mindset, right? Like, yeah. how do we make more cars?
0: I mean, if they're able to achieve that, I mean, you, probably they might not need as many gigafactories as maybe some people expect because you know, with a similar footprint, let's say, yeah. Austin Giga factory or Berlin or Shanghai, you could, you know, crank out an extra two or three million. You know, maybe, you know, next gen Th- vehicles. There's a tension
1: there. once a factory gets big enough. This, you mm-hmm. know, is that uh, consolidating more and more of the production process into a single building uh, allows you to uh, save yourself a lot of cost associated with moving parts and material around. Um, on the other hand, you have to move the final product when you get done. And moving the final product is, yeah. or, and moving intermediate products is more expensive and more complicated than moving the raw materials at the beginning, right? So, uh, you know, if you have a globe that you're going to distribute cars over, like the, the optimum solution is not one big, super optimized factory that dis- that sends cars all over the globe. It's, it's going to be some trade-off between some number of factories that are geographically distributed with enough scale at each factory that it's getting pretty close to the limits of, of, of manufacturing scale in terms of the benefits. And you, you don't have to go to one factory to get that. You know, it's as you, as, you know, 10 factories, that's probably a pretty good guess at like what the optimum would be to cover the whole globe in terms of the trade. Cause we know that you can, you, you know, we know what it costs to, to ship a car 500 miles or ship a car a thousand miles. And we know what it costs to, like, put it on a boat and ship it halfway around the world. And um, it's, it, you know, it's cheaper to have a factory where, you know, on the, on the continent that you're going to, you know, in the, in the big picture, once the market is saturated and you've built out all your factories. So mm-hmm. even though there's probably um, uh, manufacturing scale efficiencies yet to be uh, gained once you get to, like, 10 million vehicles out of a factory... I don't think you'll see them make uh, 10 million vehicles a year in a factory, even though, in principle, you could build a factory to do that because the distribution networks, both for bringing raw materials in and for distributing the final product, they get too concentrated. And so that that trade off starts hurting you at some point.
0: Sure. Um, When Elon mentioned this, uh, you know, half the effort, half the time, half everything um, at the last conference call. I feel like that was kind of overlooked by most people. I mean, to me, I just keep on thinking about that. And it's just hugely bullish on what Tesla is trying to do right now. They're not trying to do this incremental, let's save 20%, you know, costs or something. They're really shooting for this ambitious, you know, 50%. That just seems like they might not hit it, right? But it's showing what the whole team is working on right now. And it's showing they are trying to really, you know, push the envelope with whatever they can to, you know, make everything efficient, um, fast, et cetera. Um, yeah. What's your take kind of on this? Yeah. It's, it's super impressed. Uh, it, I always,
1: you know, they come out with this sort of technical solution or this, you know, business uh, strategy solution to some problem, which is, audacious
2: mm.
1: you know and they and they're working and they're working away at it and i'm i'm sitting here thinking like wow you know when they when they achieve this goal that they've set for themselves and then and then a year later and they're like yeah we're still doing that but we have this other thing beyond it that we're gonna, like i've gone through like three generations of
2: yeah of uh because
1: like i was super impressed before the die castings came out and then the die castings came out and then the origami body the structural pack like these are all amazing ideas right and and none of which few of which have really come to fruition i mean you know they're building some castings for some vehicles right now and the structural pack they've built some of those vehicles but you know in the cyber truck we haven't seen it yet so like oh, all of these are still in the pipe mm-hmm. and, and i would think you know if it was me i'd be overwhelmed with just like yeah let's get all this stuff working because when it works it's going to be amazing and yet there you know we find out oh yeah like after that we're going to make twice as many vehicles on the same hardware in the same factory, which is another, you know, (laughs) it's like, you know, another level past that because I'm, you know, I'm hard pressed to come up. I I would have been hard pressed to come up with the origami body thing like that's brilliant. And uh, so like, I was surprised and delighted when I saw that idea come out of the come out of the pipe. And, you know, the next one being that You know, we're, we're going to build twice, twice as many cars on the line. I'm, I'm actually more excited about the whole, we're going to make battery cells the way Coke fills, uh, Mm -hmm. soda bottles, (laughs) right. You know, like at machine gun speed at this, this fantastic scale, we're going to build 4680 cells and we're just going to slam dunk the battery shortage problem. That's another super audacious goal that I'm really excited to see them see. And, you know, it's still in in process. It, it's another thing that when they, when they get that working, it's just, it's gonna change, like all of these, every single one yeah. of these things individually yeah. changes the game. So die castings by themselves, they totally change the game. Like the yeah. Cybertruck body by itself, it totally changes the game. The, the manufacturing cells at a crazy, crazy scale, that totally changes the game. And yeah. you know e- each one of these individually is shocking, and when they all and and they they're they're synergistic, right? Each one of them feeds on the other to to give them scale. I mean, I forget who it was, but you know, some Tesla Q FUD guy said at one point, like several years ago, like, oh, there's no way that Tesla can do this. They'd have to grow faster than Microsoft, and Microsoft's a software company, right? <laughs> and you know, I mean, they they print CDs and send them out the door, and Tesla did actually you know, outgrow Microsoft in its heyday growth period and they make cars. It's just unbelievable. It's just yeah, yeah. like yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so frequently have a hard time believing that it's actually that they actually yeah. do this stuff like it yeah. keeps happening. And they yeah. and, and once again, they have this other this new crazy idea that that's going to ratchet it even further the next yeah. time we hear, you know.
0: It's like, um, yeah, it's 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 interesting because if you think about this next gen robotaxi type of vehicle, if it does do the whole Cybertruck fold, 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 folding steel, you know, you have the the castings already, the the structural battery pack, the forty six eighty cells maybe are you know produced at the same right next or nearby, and it's all coming together, you know in this next generation platform. It kind of, um, it's exciting. Just that in and of itself is hugely ambitious, but then you've got this whole other side of Tesla, which is a software side. And it's just the combination. It's almost like, wow, man, there's like a lot of stuff going on. Um, it's hard to- And Dojo, to, right? On, yeah, on top yeah. of this. Do, yeah,
1: exactly. Dojo, it, there was a comment. I can't remember if this was at a, AI day or not. But someone said, oh yeah, Elon subsequent to AI day, he made a comment about, you know, maybe Dojo will be successful, maybe it won't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw some people commenting on that saying, ah, oh, you know, Elon's concerned that Dojo's not gonna work or whatever the deal is. And I think that's a misunderstanding of the sentiment that he was expressing. The thing is, Dojo is, it, the right way I think to think about Dojo is Dojo is an insurance policy. For that that Tesla's taking it out against the possibility that the uh, that the people who you know gpus or other players in the business of making uh, of making training hardware for neural networks they could really up their game and make the systems much much better over the next five or ten years right but what if they don't there's reason to believe that they won't and the reason to believe they won't is that when, when, you know, when a giant you know, company get, essentially gets a monopoly on a particular chunk of technology, it's in their incentive to not move too fast, right? Because that increases your cost and risk without increasing your profit. You still own the whole market. So you don't need to push the technology. And Tesla themselves is vulnerable to that. At least some of their plans are vulnerable to that. They, you know, they need, need, they want, the infrastructure for training neural networks to advance as fast as possible. So Dojo is a way to just basically put take out an insurance policy on that, like, if Nvidia doesn't step up and do what they probably could do, because maybe it's not in their business interest to actually execute well on the technology. Well, you know, if you don't deliver it, we're going to have it, you know, in in house. And so the, the way that Dojo fails is if NVIDIA really ups their game because NVIDIA is a great company. They've got great technology. Like they could really significantly improve the tech that they deliver for neural, because you know what they make right now is they make this generalized capability, which is not at all optimized for doing neural networks. You would build it differently if all you cared about was neural networks. So will NVIDIA make a just neural networks chip or not? Well, right now it's not on their roadmap. and They don't seem to be doing it. And there's a question about you know how much they can compromise and keep it as a good gpu a good hyperscaler for you know you know hyper the 64-bit floating point 80-bit floating floating point you know math all this stuff in there that doesn't help neural networks at all like as long as they keep all that stuff in there you know then the hardware itself now, the other thing that NVIDIA has is they have really, really great software. they got a very mature software stack and they're very serious about developing the software and they're way ahead of anybody else. Like they're years and years ahead ahead of anybody else in terms of the maturity and capability of the their software stack and the optimization and that kind of stuff. So that's the whole package for NVIDIA. But NVIDIA could decide, as many tech giants in the past have, that they're, they, they don't want to move any faster than they're moving right now. And if they do that, then, uh, yeah. And if they do that then uh, then Tesla needs a backup and Tesla's backup is dojo. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah I mean it speaks to I think the the seriousness of um, Tesla's approach where um, they're not just trying to figure out they're actually um, thinking about these uh, these things yeah. to ensure their success you know yeah. they're controlling um, their own
1: destiny That's, exactly you know if, if yeah. they can't be confident that somebody they depend on, is going to deliver, they come up with a backup plan for that, you know, and I, I feel like the mining stuff is kind of like that, too. But yeah, you know, there's all kinds of external dependencies that they that they're, that they're this that, that that their ambitions, not their, their success is assured. The question is whether they will satisfy their lofty ambitions. And those ambitions, they depend on certain externalities. And once you start wondering whether that external organization, the external system, is going to deliver or whatnot, you start making plans to fix that because you don't want that to be the reason that your great plans fail.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, it's um, it's uh, always fun talking to you about all this stuff. <laughs> I just feel like um, um, yeah, sometimes it's hard to, to. To meet people who can resonate with all of the things that Tesla is doing with so many different angles, but it all comes together, um, and um, yeah, it, it's uh, quite interesting stuff. Um, so, James, I want to uh, go ahead and jump into this um, full self-driving um, presentation that yeah, Tesla so I did have with 2022. Shared, you can bring it up. Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and bring this uh, slide up here. Oh, whoops. Okay, add to stream. There you go. Okay. Um, okay. So actually, do you want to take a quick break um, before we dive into this? That might be a good idea. Let's do that. All right, we'll do that. All right, we are back from a quick break. We have uh, James Dama going to uh, dive into some of the slides on full self-driving from Tesla's AI Day. Now, this is part two of the FSD section. We already covered part one in a previous video. I'll link it in the video description if I can remember. And then also we did Optimus and the Dojo section as well. So this is the final kind of installment. Um, Yeah, so I think this is like kind of... um, If you've watched Tesla AI Day, this is a good kind of second round of watching it, but also... um, getting kind of different angles or getting a, a different explanation, uh, trying to understand some of the key concepts. So um, I'll let James go ahead. You can take it away with these slides. And then if I have any questions, I'll go ahead and interject as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, so what we're gonna do is the second half of the FSD presentation. So the AI day was, it started with uh, 30 minutes on Optimus, then it did an hour on FSD, and then it ended with 30 minutes on dojo we already did um a show on the 30 minutes of optimus a different show on the 30 minutes of dojo and a show on the first 30 minutes of fsd now we're doing the second 30 minutes of fsd (laughs) so this starts with the language of lanes stuff so in this uh the format we're going to do here is we're just going to go through slides that i took that i thought were notable i can use as reminders and i'm going to walk through and talk about what's on the slides and hopefully that will uh us to recall all the other interesting things that people might have wondered about. So Dave, I'll rely on you to do that. Sure. Okay. So, so the language of lanes, this was one of the most interesting and surprising, uh, uh, pieces of new technology that Tesla showed us on the FSD side. So, um, what they've, what they're doing is they're, they have adapted a language model, probably a transformer, to the problem of helping the vehicle understand the topology of an intersection or a road surface. Now, the topology uh, in this particular case, what we're talking about is we're talking about the sequence of point, uh, the sequence of valid, you know, uh, road segments that you can pass through. So uh, uh, actually, Ashok comes, and at the end of this, he spends a little bit of time explaining why this turned out to be useful and important for Tesla to do. Most of the way FSD understands lanes is it looks at a road, and it looks for features that a human might visually identify, right? For instance, lane markings, the edges of roads, You know, you also kind of look at the shape of like, you know, where curbs are and road signs and and whatnot. And you get a sense of like, especially at intersections, this is challenging. It can be because frequently when you're at an intersection, you can't see the whole intersection. Like you have to infer parts of it that are occluded by signs or trees or other vehicles that are also stopped at the light or whatnot. But it's also relevant in just when you're driving down a highway, especially when you come to, you know, you have splits, merges, exits, that kind of stuff, the connection, the topology, like, you know, this goes to this goes to this is a valid way of, of traversing this or this goes to this goes to this. So the way that, um, uh, in, um, uh, because neural networks are probabilistic, they have this characteristic, whereas if you have two concrete alternatives, like you have a choice A and you have a choice B, and in the way that we understand networks, this is the case. Typically, like you're either going to turn right or you're going to go straight through the intersection. And the intermediate choice is not a valid choice, right? But because um, vision is kind of continuous it, it, you know, essentially, The the visual system understands the straight lane and it understands the turning lane as two possibilities, but it has to understand them probabilistic probabilistically like this is a restriction of uh, the of neural networks process the way vision ones are so uh, you only want the vehicle to choose turn right or go straight. But in order for the neural network to have to be able to smoothly understand the probability distribution between those two, the space between has to be continuous. And so you get these weird cases where if the if the car thinks the probability that you should be turning right is very, very close to the probability that you should be going straight, it will choose to split the difference. <laughs> and this is never something that we want in a car. And in fact, this is not we, the, the neural network shouldn't even try to understand lanes in that sense. So what's another approach that you can do? Okay. Well, language models, you know, there are no intermediate words, like all the tokens, all of the words in a language are kind of, uh, you know, set. You can have, you know, a, an, and B, but there's no word halfway between a and N that kind of means a split between the two. So one of the strengths of language models is that they for is that, uh, there's, you know, there's a sequence that's that has some uh, uh, favorability for your understanding of how the grammar works, and they've chosen to use that this particular strength for trying to understand lanes. So, how do you try to understand lanes with a language model? And, you know, they 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 came they had this quip that they said, "Well, we made a language of lanes, where you know the words are essentially points in the road." That can be connected, and a phrase is like a sequence of points that you can traverse. Um, so, you know, uh, an entire sentence would be all of the phrases, which are valid ways to traverse this choice that you have coming up, or the the understanding of this intersection. So, because of the way that language networks are trained, um, especially GPTs, what they do is you can put a malformed sentence into into a language model. It's a, so uh, language models are sequence to sequence models. You put a sequence of tokens in, and they provide a sequence of tokens as an output. And if the language model is, is, uh, is well-trained, it will only produce grammatically correct outputs. Like it'll never you know, use the wrong article or put the preposition on the wrong side of the noun. Like it'll always be grammatically valid. So one of the things that you can do with this trick is if you, d- if you come up with your grammar, your, your language that you're gonna describe your, your lanes in and you train the network on grammatically correct, like valid intersections, then if you put in a malformed intersection, what the model will cough up is the nearest valid intersection. And this is helpful in this situation where the car is coming to an intersection and it sees what it sees, and then to just check and make sure that it's understanding things correctly, it takes that interpretation, converts it into this grammar, puts it in the language model. And then what comes back out of, if what comes back out of the language model is not what you put in, then, what, then, what, then the car knows it made a mistake. That is, it, mis, it misunderstood something because its understanding isn't grammatically valid that is it's not a valid intersection. And so what the language model gives them back is a valid, the closest valid intersection to the thing that they put in there. So what they're hoping, what Tesla is achieving with this, is uh, in situations where where the, the network, the vision system itself is not correctly ascertaining the interconnectedness of all the lanes in an intersection or a place where you have a merge or a separation, what that model does is it fixes it for you, and it hands back a corrected interpretation of this, and so you can act on that corrected interpretation instead of your, instead of your erroneous visually perceived. Is it? Does that make sense, Dave?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, um, okay, so, what does is this language of lanes? Is it actually something that exists? Bef- let's say before the car gets to that intersection, and then it's checking. With this language of lanes, to see the valid kind of um, lanes going into the intersection, is that kind of how it works, basically?
1: Yeah. So the language is sort of uh, like a, you know that was just a quip that they tossed out. Essentially, mm-hmm. what they they've, they've done is they've described a synthetic grammar, which is basically a sequence by which you could describe like a valid way of traversing an intersection. For instance, Good. if you come to a right, if you come to an intersection right? And you have a choice of either turning right or going straight. You could have a point before you get to the intersection, a point in the intersection. And then at some point, you know, you, you have to go a little to the right and then exit the intersection other points. So you might have these four points that describe a right turn and you might have a different four points that describe going through the turn. So, uh, so you have a grammar where at each point it talks about where you are and what the next point is. So, in that sense, like if you have some tokens, some words that describe each one of these points, in other words, it has a mean, each one of them has a meaning, and the meaning is a combination of where you are and what the next choices are or what the previous choices were. You can go either forwards or backwards. And in fact, they do the latter. They make it so that latter points refer back to the point that connected to them. And that's a grammatical part of the meaning of that token. So these tokens, they're arbitrary, they're synthetic. Like Tesla just made up a bunch of numbers and they assign these meanings to them. But what the sequence model does is if this, if you describe this synthetic grammar, if you create it so that it's appropriately constrained That is, there's only, you know, when, when I do a right turn, I go, I have like my four words that describe Mm. for this intersection, you know, I come to this lane, I proceed into the intersection, I move a little to the right, and then I exit the intersection. So maybe those are the four points. And you have a phrase that describes that. So um, if you do that for every way of traversing the intersection now you can make a sentence which is a combination of all these phrases and that sentence is grammatically valid if it describes an intersection that could exist in the real world hmm. if that makes sense so essentially they take they, they you know they have this database of all these intersections that they've collected and they they run it through this preprocessor that describes a phrase now these are validated intersections that you know The car has put them together. They have the data. Maybe they've gotten it out of their auto labeler system, or maybe a human has looked at it Mm -hmm. and they, and they create these valid sentences that describe these valid sequences that describe valid intersections. And then you train your language model on that. So it learns the, it learns the grammar of intersections in the real world. So they're, Mm -hmm. so a real intersection that can really exist will always be grammatically correct. And so the thing is, if you use that same grammar to describe an intersection that the car sees, that it's currently perceiving, if it tosses it in that sequence model, that language model, and what comes back is different from what it put in, it knows it misunderstood something, and it needs to use the what came back instead because that's more likely to be true than what it put in to the model.
2: Got it. So okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So let's say. Um, so. First Step Tesla takes all these different intersections that they've validated, they understand everything. They create, um, with each kind of possible path through the intersection, it creates a sequence or a phrase. They put all that together into a sentence um, and they come up with kind of this grammar or this language where um, it's it's all the, the valid, Basically phrases and sentences put together in some way. Yeah. And so, it- so imagine
1: like with a language, there's mm-hmm. um, you know, there's infinite sentences that you can say, but it but you know, a native speaker of a language can tell you, well, that sentence is wrong. It's not grammatically correct because it violates some kind of rule, right? So that's a characteristic that languages have is that is that you there are lots you can it, language is incredibly flexible. Like you, you, know, there's almost an uncountable number of different sentences that you can say. And yet if you pick a bunch of words at random it's going to be wrong right mm-hmm. and so you know if somebody who doesn't know a language very well they says they say something to you and it's grammatically incorrect you might know what they're getting at and and you internally can convert that into a grammatically correct sentence and hand it back well so what they've done is they, they, they essentially create this database from intersections that they have of grammatically correct intersections. It's just a training database. And then they train the model. So the model knows when the model looks at all these correct systems at all of these correct, uh, you know, examples and it, and you know, and the model, it builds internally is like, what makes it correct? Like, what are all the different things about it that make it valid that make it a that make it a correct interpretation of the intersection. And then, so this is what language models do. And the, 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 one of the reasons they're doing this with a language model is because language models have this characteristic that is, that is where you can put an ungrammatical sentence in and they fix it for you, right? And that's that in a weird way that's exactly what tesla needs in this situation and it's a very clever application because not many people would think oh yeah network traversal in a in an intersection that's a language problem right and yet it's it's a very clever way of solving the particular problem where you know the car is coming to an intersection and it sees something but it might be wrong and so problem the reason the reason almost undoubtedly that Tesla's doing this is because they have some frequency, maybe 1% or 0.1% of intersections where they come to it. And the car, the car sees it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And the thing that it sees that it's perceiving is a thing that a human will say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like that can't be a network or whatnot. So this mm-hmm. language model thing is a way of taking that very human intuition of like, that, well, that thing that you're saying, that's a misinterpretation. Actually, what the network is, is this other what the intersection is, is this other thing. And the language model is a clever way of basically creating this thing that understands from the sequence that you're describing in, is that a valid intersection, the thing you think you're seeing? Is that likely to be correct or not? And if it's, and if it's not likely to be correct, what's the closest thing, which probably is the
0: truth. Got it. I mean, could, okay, so is there a different way to do this besides language? I mean, why did Tesla kind of end up, you know, choosing this as as the best approach?
1: Well, it's I haven't thought super hard about this problem. You, you're Sort of asking me on the cuff, well, what other ways could you go about? It? <laughs> well, the, yeah. the, the way that you would try to do it, the first thing you mm. would try to do is just make the vision model accurate enough that it doesn't that it never misunderstands, that it never missees something when it when it approaches. And probably that's what Tesla has been trying to do, is just add more data and add more data and get the get the thing to where it doesn't see this. But uh, vision models, as I mentioned before, they kind of have this weakness where they naturally will split the difference if they have two choices that are like, if one of them is at 49.99999, mm-hmm. and the other one is coming out as fifty point they're really close together. And it the because of the way neural networks work, because they have to be smooth gradations from one to the other, even if you have... Two different probabilities, only one of them can be right. But if what the network sees is something which is which is very close, you really want to force it to choose to make one of those two choices. And and because of the way vision models work, it's very hard to formulate a a vision model such that you're forcing it to make one of those two choices. And uh, you know, as I said, this is a very clever solution because when you use a language model. know when when gpt3 coughs up a sentence there's never some you know mishmash garbled word which isn't a real word in there Mm -hmm. every single word is going to be a real word and every single sentence that comes out will be a valid sentence so this is kind of they're harnessing that characteristic that language models have that they that they're very good at making these black and white determinations about what is a valid output and what isn't a valid output and then additionally they have this characteristic gpts do and i think they're probably using a gpt because that seems that's a uh generative pre-trained transformer right so that's a kind of language model and uh because they're good at this kind of thing they they will do a thing where you put you put a slightly ungrammatical sentence into it and it'll correct it for you and so that's a pretty brilliant way to fix your misunderstanding of 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 an intersection is is describe it as a language problem and then put it in a language model and the language model will just tell you what the right answer is probably got it, got it. and and that one gpts like they're really they're self supervised models so you can gather you can just put tons and tons and tons of data into these things and the models get really really good at telling the difference between valid and invalid things so that's another nice characteristic of this like Human beings don't have to review most of this data. Like if you have an algorithm that's pretty good at taking these, you know, clean, validated, you know, intersections that in your database that, you know, that you've got, you can write a piece of software that converts them into the grammar representation, trains a model against this thing. And now you have something that will fix any misunderstanding that the network has about the topology of uh, of an intersection that it's coming to. Where in this case, like I said, intersection can include merges and splits and that kind of
0: stuff, too. Okay, so does this language of lanes help when, let's say, the car is approaching an intersection. Let's say it's occluded, there's a van next to them, there's some tree or something, they can't see everything. But from what they can see, it goes into this network, neural net, and through the language of lanes, it's able to at least, from what it's able to see, what's the grammatically correct kind of options for the car to go right and as a car goes into the intersection those choices could be or it'll adapt because there's more information so it might give it a different choice but they're all grammatically correct but it's
1: less likely like you know so here's a classic right you come to an intersection and there's two left turn lanes right? And mm-hmm. your car is in the inner one or the outer one. And then as you're doing through like, I've had I've had this experience, I'm sure other people have had this experience, where you're going through the intersection in one of the two left turn lanes, and the car decides it's going to be it's going to complete the left turn in the other left turn lane, right? Yeah, yeah like, exactly. you know, it's so the thing is, if you don't have. So imagine, you know, the car comes to the intersection, it sees two left turn lanes, right? And the vision thing says, ah, two left turn lanes. You can be in either one. Maybe you want to be in the right one because you have a right turn coming up. So you get in that one. And as you're going, the car, the car's field of view is rotating and it sees the, you know, it sees the exit to the inner to the intersection, you know, because maybe there's a truck next to you and you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And then once it comes into view, the 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 car looks at it and it makes a mistake in that it perceives that there's only one left turn at, you know, lane to exit the intersection. And so it does a lane change in the middle of the intersection. That's never the right answer. The thing is we know as human beings, if there are two left turns (laughs) lanes, there are going to be two lanes exiting the intersection. It is never the case that two left turns merge in the middle of an intersection, right? So that's an example of where, you know, if the car was in the, if the car's in the intersection and it's starting to do its turn, it will know, you know, because of this logic that it gets from the, the language model that you never should have a merge of turning lanes when you're in the middle of an intersection. You you know, the left turn lane, you know, the leftmost left turn lane, it will always be the leftmost lane exiting that intersection. And the one over, it will always be the next one over. So that's a grammar you know, the, the, the language model can understand that as a grammatical issue and it can fix it if you have a misunderstanding about it. Right? right. Like you, you know, so when you see the output, it can fix that for you. Now you could say, oh, well, that's simple. Like, why don't you just hard code that? Right. As a, you know, why doesn't why some human programmer just say, well, if there's two left turn lanes and you're in the right one, it's always going to be the second lane leading the intersection. And you can do that. The problem with doing it for all of the possible mistakes that could be made is that the world is perversely complicated. So you can write this very long list yeah. of rules. Intersections always do this. Intersections always do this. Intersections always do this. And there will always be stuff that isn't on your list. So it may be that Tesla already wrote the left-turn thing or they, and they have a bunch of rules and they just looked at that and they said, okay, this is getting too complicated we need a neural network to solve this problem because we're trying it with a heuristic. We're trying it with an algorithm and it's not working. And so, and this was the algorithm that they came up with is, which is let's describe intersections as if they were a sentence Mm -hmm. and let's use a language model to correct the grammar when the vision system is getting it wrong.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's say the car's in an intersection and, um, let's say um, the wrong move, the crazy move is to go, let's say something diagonally s- through the intersection grammatically that won't, that will basically fail the, this, um, yeah. the language of lanes. And so, so that's not a possibility. Right. And then yeah. if, if, if you're ready, let's say the, I don't know, the car wouldn't take that route, but if it did, it would, it would show also the, the, the gra- grammatically correct options to to detour off of that, let's say, incorrect yeah. path, right? Um, okay, so does Tesla does Tesla use this language of lanes? Do they? Do you think they're saving certain intersections? Like, let's say, um, they they have cars that traverse, let's say, certain intersections frequently, and are they saving those intersections? Kind of you know, the language so that- the Yeah, next we'll time see a it on car- some
1: of these slides once we get going. So okay. I wanted to discuss this in the beginning yeah. to lay the foundation, because we're going to go through some slides. And it will uh, it'll illustrate various aspects of what i just talked about but it's easier to explain i i felt like it was easier to explain yeah. what the point is up front and yeah, then go yeah. through the slides and show how they illustrate this also it's worth mentioning one thing when i come up with these examples and when we talk about these things we we we're talking about oh the car can or can't do this or it makes some mistake the the main effect that this is going to have is that you know, everybody's had this thing where, like, you're doing the left turn and the car stops, and the you know the, the steering wheel moves back and yeah. forth. That you're going to do in the right, you're doing your right turn, and the wheel jerks a little, and then it goes into the right lane, or maybe it, does, it goes into the next lane over. Right? The issue is not so much the situation where the car simply can't understand what it needs to do. It's that for to have a smooth and comfortable experience, you want the you want the vehicle to understand as far ahead of time as possible, exactly what the possibilities are. And as it goes through a maneuver, you don't want its opinion to change. Not You want it to be confident. And as it goes through, if its opinion does need to change, you want it to change right away and you want to be totally certain mm-hmm. so that so that you don't get this thing where the wheel is jiggling back and forth because it's in some no man's land right now. Um, because the vision system and the way that it goes about making decisions and that kind of stuff can have these interme- intermediate Uh, results which create an uncomfortable experience because the car is uncertain when we want it to be confident so the effect that you're going to see on this for the most part is going to be it's not just going to be that you're less likely to end up doing a lane change in an intersection where you shouldn't be doing a lane change but it's that you know much more often when you're traversing the lane the car isn't going to spend a a, you know time being uncertain about what's going on and and you know confusing the driver or doing something weird that confuses the people around you it'll be more confident about the things that it does because it has this framework that is a better fit to quickly understanding the correct
0: lane topology of the intersection makes sense do you want to go through the sites um Yeah. yeah
1: Okay, so we uh, we he we're in the explanation here we're um, first we're getting an example of the old school way of doing this. Like this is how it understands lanes, you know, not giving the language of lanes things. You know, we yeah. have we have pavement, we have lane markers, and we understand lanes this way. Okay, but you look at lanes in the real world, and they're pretty complicated. They're giving us a couple of examples of of uh, pretty complicated lanes. And they're showing us on the right here a couple of examples of how this this can go pretty wrong, right? For instance, you can see that um, uh, you know you you they they've you've got this really complicated intersection on the left on the top here. Uh, and is this the same intersection? So the vehicle gets to it and it's trying to you know it it has a it has a confusing. Uh, It's for whatever reason, it's misapprehending what's coming into it. And it's, it's drawing these lane lines that you, as a human, you can look at that. You can say, this is totally inappropriate, but what's happening is the vehicle's getting to this intersection and it has, you know, it has a choice to turn left or it has a choice to turn right. And for whatever reason, when it gets to this particular point, its opinion is shifting from left to right. And you have this intermediate state, which is totally invalid because there is no lane that goes where those green lines go. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of illustrating the weakness of trying to solve this problem in the vision domain. Mm-hmm. It's not to, this is not to say that it's a fool's errand to do it with vision. If your vision is sufficiently accurate, it will instantly snap from one choice to another. But in the case for the amount of data they have and how complicated the intersections are and all the confounding factors they have to deal with, the reality of the system right now is occasionally you get these weird intermediate stages that are not valid. And so that creates problems for the system. So they, they're showing us two different examples here. One, and one, the, the intersection of the top left, you know, produces the top right erroneous lane. The intersection at the bottom left produces uh, the bottom right, you know, erroneous intersection, as I said, you can look at these, you can see that they're totally invalid interpretations. Got it. Okay. So now the objective of doing this, I guess they're calling FSD lanes here. Uh, so maybe that's what they call the product internally FSD lanes. So they're showing how you can break down an intersection, you can see all of these, this web of interconnections, this is every valid way to traverse this intersection, right? And each one of these little arrowheads is kind of an intermediate point that you traverse on your way through the intersection. Does that make sense?
0: Mm -hmm. Got it.
1: Okay. Now they talk a little bit about, let's see, I'm going to skip ahead here and see. Oh yeah. So let's talk about this one a minute. So this is an example, this is a slide that was brought up as kind of showing how they break down their, you know, uh, an intersection into a phrase. So as you, I guess you can't see my pointer if I point here, can you?
2: No.
1: Um, so let's look at the, you know, entering this exit from the bottom on the rightmost lane, right? Oh, yeah. That. So you can see that. If you start at that bottommost right white dot, right at the edge, um, that when as it moves forward, there's there's two points you can validly move to from there, right? One of them is to turn right into the rightmost lane, and the other one is to turn right into the next lane over. But you'll notice there is no valid path that goes through the intersection because this is a right turn only mm-hmm. lane, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, the next lane over, if we look at the middle lane entering from the bottom going up, right, it has an intermediate point halfway through the intersection, and it has only one valid exit point, because Mm -hmm. this is a must go straight lane, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, the, the next lane over, which can turn left entering from the bottom, it has three valid intermediate points and three valid exit points that are described on an arc here, because the left can legitimately turn into any of the three lanes, that exit, the intersection. So what they're doing here is for every entrance and every exit of this, they're drawing a little map that connects every legitimate way to go from one point to another. And they're breaking it down into the minimum number of points and the minimum number of, 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 uh, of uh, connections between those points. So you could imagine essentially creating a phrase, as it were, for each one of these paths if you had a meaning that you could ascribe to each one of these points. So how do you go about doing that? And they spend a little bit of time talking about it. Um, And this is, uh, so here on the left here, they're showing us some components of a transformer that would be used for a language model. I, I probably don't want to spend too much time on the technical details here because most people aren't going to find it that interesting. But essentially, uh, here, uh, what we're being walked through is, is how do you take this thing on the right? You see, there's this one little green dot at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And, he, and essentially, what, what the presentation is doing is it's describing how do you ascribe a meaning to that You know, what are the tokens in the sequence that would would narrow this down to the unique meaning we want it to have so that it can become, you can see that row of white boxes across the top and the leftmost one has a green dot in it. They're filling in the phrase that they're going to use to describe this intersection. They're starting with that green dot. So let's see. And so here, you know, they've got their yellow dot, which is that's one of the exits On this next slide, for this, so this particular phrase has green dot, yellow dot as one of the uh, as one of the phrases that starts it. Let's see, we'll go down another one, and so here they're adding a third one. They're basically saying, you know, and the third one is the continuation of this phrase down it. Now, each each one of these, the meaning is constructed from an X, you know, essentially a, a. uh, a, a set of X, Y coordinates entering the intersection, if you will. And then the phrase itself is word, 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 which is point, point, point as for legitimate traversals of the intersection. Uh, and then you have to end a phrase. It's, oh, so this is their Now they're, they're doing the second phrase and uh, you can see on this one it's a little bit different than the others in that they're basically describing the second one or the the third one down from the top but you can see the blue box that says index 11 another blue box below that says index 29 the one below that is fork because this blue dot its predecessor is a green dot that also forks to a different point Right. And so a a component of its meaning is that it's the next point after after a fork. So the meanings of these different points have to have to encapsulate not just where they are in the intersection, but also what the nature of their connection to the to their preceding point is and what that preceding point is. There's also a pointer back to the green dot. Yeah, let's see if it's here. Yeah, so the the fourth blue box from the top that says index zero, null, mx1, mx2, whatever, that's essentially a pointer where this fork is basically saying, look at the index zero, that is the green dot, the first point in the sentence, that's the one that I'm referring back to. Right.
0: So, okay, so how are they choosing the colors? Like, do, they, do the colors have any <laughs> okay.
1: meaning? This is just, the color has no meaning here. Okay. They're just, they're color coding these things so that they're, um, yeah, just to take a step back.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, the presenter is walking us through an explanation to try to say, how can you turn, you know, an intersection into a language, into a sequence? And he's basically walking through you saying, well, imagine that, you know, each one of those points, you know, if we go back up here to this description, yeah. each one yeah. of these white points is a word in the sentence that will make up the language and the meaning of each one of those white dots it'll you know it'll be a word whose meaning is a combination of where it where it is xy in the intersection and how it's connected to the points preceding it and if you by by doing that you can essentially make this a grammar you can make it into a set of sequences because of course when you traverse an intersection you're always you're moving through a sequence of points and so the the the, the core insight here is that there's only certain sequences of points that are legitimate, that are valid, that should be considered a legitimate interpretation of of how you can uh, traverse this. And by, by basically taking all of those sequences, you can make a sentence, and then you can use a language model to determine if that sentence makes sense or not. And if it doesn't make sense, how it should
0: be interpreted instead. Got it. So is it more like taking let's say the green dot is the starting point with the X y or you know coordinate and then you have the middle you say yellow whatever it's another x y coordinate and then you end with the whatever the yeah. red dot is ending with another yeah. x y coordinate
1: Yeah I mean so you can see the sentence they start with if mm-hmm. you look in the the row of white boxes there's a green yellow and red dot right And so they're basically making they're saying here's our sentence. Mm-hmm. It has the green word, the yellow word, the red word, um, and that corresponds to this traject to this valid trajectory through the intersection. Which is, you know, if you look at the picture, the green dot, the yellow dot, the red dot, and then in the description on the left here, they're basically giving us an idea of how the meanings of these different words are constructed to make the tokens that are going to get fed into the model. Now, this stuff it's mm. completely synthetic. Yeah. Like they're making up this totally synthetic language that describes paths through intersections Mm -hmm. and how you can connect them all together. And the thing is, um, language models are basically sequence to sequence models. They take an input sequence, they map it to a valid output sequence. And usually what you do is, with a GPT, you feed a, you feed a sentence in and it tells you what the next word is. That's that's how GPTs tend to get trained. You, you tell them, you give them the first word of a sentence, they'll suggest the second. Then you put two valid words in for a sentence, it'll suggest what the third one should be and so on. Uh, if you put a whole sentence in, it will give you back that whole sentence with whatever the next word is. And if you made an error in your sentence, it'll correct it as part of the thing. So one of the things you can do is you can put a, you can put a sentence that has an error in it in, and it'll give you a correct sentence, which is very, very close to the sentence that you had. So the the cleverness of this is like, how can we take this problem, which is basically cars driving through an intersection. It's, It's a, it's a, it's a spatial problem. And how do we convert that into a sequence problem so that we can use this characteristic of sequences, languages, language models, which are very, A language is an extraordinarily sophisticated sequence of words, Uh, and so how do we use this strength that this thing has to solve this problem we have of not properly understanding what's going on? Now, arguably, there are many different ways you could approach doing this problem, and the reason to do it this way, I would suggest, or what makes this good, is that they can draw on this very mature and very well understood set of models and training systems and whatnot that because language models today are pretty mature, and they're pretty capable. And um, a generatively trained, uh, you know, a GPT style model, like it it has some uh, characteristics as far as uh, like actually building it and training it and whatnot, which make it really good fit for the characteristics of this. And the only trick really, is like, can you come up with a grammar that's sufficiently expressive, and that's sufficiently easy to use and translate and all that kind of stuff, but st- but which still turns it into a kind of language problem? And you know, with the uh, 10.69.3 notes, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things they were that they uh, that they said in that note was, "Oh, we changed the grammar on this." Mm-hmm. So you know, it's early days. They tried something, and it wasn't. You know, they had a it had a hitch, it wasn't working as well as they thought it to, they probably found a bug in their grammar. And then they're like, Ah, we got to change the grammar. So they changed the, the meanings, some for some of these words in some way. Uh, so that and then they retrain the whole network, and then they got better results out of it later. Got it. Okay, so this sequence of slides is just basically walking us through, you know, uh, you know, if, if you were a practitioner in this field, So this is not a presentation which is targeted at you and me. It's targeted at like trying to get somebody who uh, would be interested in this problem into it. And I think the reason that the presentation takes the time to go into these details about how you, like how do you take this spatial problem and turn it into, is because it's very clever, right? So, you know, somebody who is interested in working on this is gonna look at this and say, that's really cool. It's a recruiting thing, right? Okay, so this is the slide. I, I left this in as a reminder to me. Ashok comes out at the end and he tries to, because even if you're a, you know, even if you, you're a practitioner and you understand the material pretty well, you can get to this point in the, in the thing and say, now, why would you do that? And Ashok basically comes out and says, hey, look, we had this problem. <laughs> Sometimes you get these invalid interpretations and the language model is a way to fix it right? So that whatever interpretation that the car is coming up with for what it's seeing, it needs to be a valid interpretation. Like that whole blue lane lines going through the building across the thing, that's never valid. So mm-hmm. that's a problem that the language thing, it totally solves because all of the interpretations that can, that can come out of this thing, they will be valid things. Like there will be no, oh yeah, you should cross through that building as an intermediate product. Got it okay moving on to the next thing uh let's see this might be not be something that people will find interesting so th- these going some details about how they go about doing this right they they you know they they they, they take the sequence of cameras they feed it into the trans they feed it in they are using a transformer uh so this is basically describing, so, okay, so you train this neural network, right? Now you gotta use it in the car. So how do, you, how do you quickly interpret what the car is seeing, translate that into an intermediate product that you can feed into this network, and then get an output product from the, from the network that you can use to validate the car's understanding. So this is basically technical details about how the neural network uh, architecture it, that runs inside the car is doing this trick. Good. Okay. So at this point, we move on to a different part of the presentation. So mm-hmm. the next section of this, it so this the language of lanes things, it kind of segues into a discussion of like how they are optimizing uh, various tasks that they do. Uh, as part of FSD to make them take fewer resources in the car or produce better resources, where resources in this case is the compute. Like how many compute cycles does it take on the hardware that's in the car in order to achieve a particular objective? So like anybody who's worked in the software space can tell you that you can optimize something and sometimes you run an optimizing compiler and the code gets smaller and faster. And sometimes you refactor the code like you... Describe the problem in a slightly different way. That's a different kind of optimization that you can do where the resulting code is smaller and produces better results when it it runs. So of course, uh, when we're talking about the car, we're talking about this is an edge device. This is a system that's out in the world and it's got a finite compute uh, budget that it has to run. And you have two of these FSD chips on there and all the algorithms and all the neural networks that you're running on them, they have to run in real time. So, you know, every second you've got, you know, 144 tops of neural network compute and you've got so many cycles on the CPUs and GPUs that are also in there and whatever algorithm you use, it has to run inside that. So one thing that you can do to get better mileage, to get better use of the hardware you have is you can refactor code or you can come up with the various optimization schemes that do exactly equivalent things that just happen to take fewer compute cycles. So the next part of this presentation, this gentleman is talking in some amount of detail about how they go about doing various kinds of optimization. Now, once, once again, this is a thing for somebody in the space. Uh, we'll look at this and see that Tesla is doing this kind of optimization with these kinds of tools. This is maybe something that if you're sitting in the audience, and you're a practitioner. This is something you have experience with, or something that you find interesting, or uh, you know that might sort of persuade you that Tesla's serious in this space, and maybe you should come work here if you find this stuff interesting. So they start out by talking about how, you know, some optimizations that they do for the for the FSD lanes. I don't actually remember the details of how. Oh yeah. Let's see if I remember the context for this. Embeddings. Yeah, so it's the right way to describe this. Um, So a lot of neural network algorithms, they consist of components that you run sequentially. And then components that are actually the you know big matrix operations. So the FSD hardware has a really big matrix multiplier that runs really fast. That's the thing that provides them 144 trillion operations per second. Now, any neural network that you're going to do where it, where you, where basically it's just neural, it's just these big matrix operations. This is going to run incredibly efficiently on Trip. The trip is the neural network processor that they've got. Um, the, there are algorithms that won't run as well on this hardware. So uh, that one of the risky things about designing your own hardware for doing neural networks at this point of the neural network uh, revolution is that the field moves really fast. And so you could design a piece of hardware that's really, really good at running some particular algorithm that your system is highly dependent on. And then a year later, you find out there's a better way to do it, but it doesn't run as well on your hardware because maybe it needs some ingredient that you didn't include in your hardware. Or maybe it rearranges a problem natively in a way that didn't do that. And so the FSD lanes, they kind of do this. They have this sort of transformer-ish bit to them, which requires... The it requires the CPU to do some stuff and then a matrix multiply. And then you go back to the CPU and you do some stuff and then you gotta go do this matrix multiply and then you do the CPU. And so you're going back and forth a bunch of times and that takes time. It's not a good use of resources. So in this particular presentation, they're detailing like how they refactored that problem to basically take the CPU parts, think about the problem in a slightly different way. It's functionally equivalent, it produces the same results. But we're taking the CPU, we're re-envisioning this thing in a way where it'll all run on the matrix multiplier. So we don't have to go from the matrix multiplier back. Now, it might take more matrix multiply resources than it took before, but the thing is, Previously, it was kind of slow because you would do a certain amount and then you'd have to switch over this process and you'd go back and forth. So you wouldn't be making as good a use of your hardware and you'd be accumulating latency from having to pop back and forth between these two things. So the description that, that we're seeing in this presentation is how they went about refactoring the problem in order to, to, uh, to, to uh, get it all to run on the matrix multiplier. And it's really clever. And I wish I could explain it quickly in a video. But this is going to get really long and become very not understandable if I try to get into it. But the thing is, there are, there are a lot of heuristic operations, mm-hmm. things that you want to do in like a conventional program that are difficult to translate into matrix, uh, into just brute force matrix math, which is what the trip process is really good at. It's really good at just brute forcing these giant matrices. So it takes a significant amount of cleverness to figure out well if I'm going to get the CPU out like how can I trade and, and and just to put it in perspective um you know the matrix multiplier is like 10,000 times faster than the CPU in terms of operations like it's just extraordinarily faster so the thing is even if you take something that the CPU would have taken say you know A thousand cycles to do and now it takes you ten thousand cycles or a hundred thousand cycles like initially that sounds like that's a loss but the thing is you're now running it on a piece of hardware that's got like ten thousand times as much performance so even if you take a hundred x hit on your efficiency you still come out way ahead because you're running on something that's ten thousand times faster and essentially what they did was they, they 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 refactored this algorithm to do essentially that trick. They did some things that, that normally you wouldn't think of like this is a good way to do this algorithm, except for the fact that it allows the entire algorithm to run on the part of the processor, which is the fastest, which is just like literally four orders of magnitude faster than the part you would have had to use otherwise. So incidentally, this is the kind of thing that if you're making hardware for, <laughs> right? If you're doing the next generation version of the chip, you're like, yeah, you know, it would have been nice to not have to jump through all those hoops in order to get this to run really fast. Now, this is a very clever optimization, but it takes a significant amount of engineering effort in order to get it to do that, right? And it's maybe less efficient in certain respects than you might want. So ideally, your hardware would just be able to do this. So, you know, it's conceivable that one of the reasons we haven't seen hardware for yet is because is because late in the development of hardware for they realized they were gonna wanna do this or do something like this. And they're like, oh, we gotta add that back in. So you go back to the drawing board and you add the hardware to support this new thing. Like I said, there's a certain amount of risk in designing highly optimized and the trip processors highly optimized for doing these kinds of neural networks. That if you get an algorithm that doesn't quite fit you're just completely like you just can't run that algorithm or you have to do this thing where you jump through a lot of hoops to get to map it onto your hardware so they're cleverly jumping through some hoops here and they're getting some good results out of it but ideally you would want to not have to do that you would want to add in the little bit to the hardware that basically smooths over this operation that you didn't think of when you built this a few years ago because nobody was doing this kind of thing say Mm so that is I don't know. That's what's going on here. Like, I don't know that they're adding this stuff to hardware for, I'm just using this as an illustration Mm -hmm. of the trade-off between getting your hardware sooner versus waiting a little longer so that more of the research results and more experience with the stuff you've done so far can be included in the design of your new chip, your new sensor Mm -hmm. suite, whatever.
0: Got it. Makes sense.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, so this is kind of a listed description of stuff that they did to do this particular conversion. Let's see if I can explain this. Uh, Do you want to know what all this stuff means?
0: (laughs) Maybe just high level. It doesn't doesn't have to be super detailed.
1: Yeah, so they had to come. So Softmax free attention. so uh, Transformers, which is the neural network architecture that they wanted to use in this because it's really good at GPT's, it has a subsystem in it called the tension, which is where diff- different to- when the neural network is evaluating sequence, one of the things that it does is it figures out when it, 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 it does the... Sequ- it, the it, it, you have a sequence that gets loaded in, which is maybe 100 tokens or 1,000 tokens, and it proceeds through multiple steps of this transformer to the output until it gets transformed into the final version. At each stage, the, this, the subsequent interpretation of the token in that particular slot has a dependency on the other tokens and where they, based on their position and their meanings and that kind of stuff. That mechanism is called attention. Attention uses, uh, it uses softmax and softmax is basically this, um, it's this, uh, this way of describing a set of possibilities, uh, of categorical possibilities. Like say there's a hundred possibilities. I want to assign a probability to each one of those and then weigh them all together. Um, the reason that you have to do this kind of convoluted thing is, uh, for, you can't just pick one of the outputs. You have to sort of have this smooth transition between the different choices, because when you train a neural network, it has to be, uh, it has to be a continuous function that you can do back propagation through that has, that has smooth gradients. So instead of, you can't do uh, these like total nonlinear, not non-reversible operations. So softmax is kind of a way of making a choice between a bunch of things and doing it in a smooth way where all of the input choices have probabilities. Okay, so softmax is kind of a, n- not a, uh, it's not a good fit for the hardware that they're running on the softmax part of this needs to run on the cpu so this is one of those things where they had to run on the cpu before the softmax so instead what they did was they devised a different way of doing attention which is like as i mentioned it's a it's a critical capability of transformers in fact it's kind of the most important uh component of what transformers bring to the overall neural networking thing and they came up with a way to do it without softmax should I do that for all the rest of these?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, actually we we'll, let's let's just uh we'll, we'll just breeze through this. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I mean this stuff is super fun to talk about, but I don't yeah, want yeah, this video yeah. to turn into three hours yeah, yeah, that only yeah, like yeah. three people in the audience are yeah, gonna enjoy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they had a looping construct, they got rid of that. So because you don't want to do looping, you want to do these bulk a, one big matrix to another big matrix, you don't want to iterate through a loop where you have to make mm-hmm. a bunch of choices going like that's an inefficient use. And then tiling and ballot match is another, you know, uh it's another process that you can use for uh for converting something that's kind of sequential into something that can be handled in a batch mode. So then these other categories, improving int a accuracy. So uh, the trip processor and the matrices that the FSD hardware does, they're all all of the weights and the core multiply operations, they're all done in an 8-bit format. So 8-bit is a very small uh, number. <laughs> it's a byte, and it's the smallest kind of digital representation of a number which is commonly used. Uh, The great thing about it is it's only eight bits. So multiplying two numbers, adding two numbers in eight bits, you can do it really fast. It takes very little hardware. It takes very little power. The trip processor is basically designed to do all of its heavy lifting in eight bits. Now, eight bits kind of has a problem in that there's only 256 values you can get out of it. So if you do lots of sequential operations in the eight bit domain, you have to keep an eye on the intermediate products to make sure they don't underflow. Like you don't get any mathematical results that exceed 255 and you don't get any that go negative or go below zero. Uh, or if you're going from, you know, plus uh, 128 to minus 127, that's another sort of, that that's the uh, the signed integer thing. This is, yeah, so this is a sign in a, anyway, so, if you, if you work in a higher precision format, 16 bits, 32 bits or something like that, you don't have to spend as much time checking your intermediate products. But the thing is the, the computation that is necessary to perform those operations at the hardware level is that is very substantially more energy intensive and it takes a lot more silicon real estate to build that hardware. So what Tesla decided to do, and this is absolutely the right decision, is when they build a neural network and they train it and they get it working, They go through, they take that neural network before they put it in a form that runs on the car and they go through a process called quantization, which is basically where you change the algorithm and the intermediates in a way that you can run it on using smaller representations. So when they trained it, they might have trained it using 32-bit or 16-bit representations. But then when they get done, they run, they do this optimization pass, which is called quantization, that makes it so the whole thing can run it in 8-bit eight, in representations. Uh, it turns out that this works great for neural networks. Like 8-bit uh, in, uh, integers are plenty for, uh, for doing uh, inference on, on neural networks. It's not a good format for doing training in generally. Dojo is going to have a, we know they have uh, a CFP8 format, which is kind of a hybrid where um, it's better for training. It has some complications for using it, but it's better than a strict UN. And they will use that for training on Dojo, which is actually going to be one of its major advantages over existing hardware is its ability to work at 8 bits also for training. But today, like when they run their GPU cluster, they'll be training at 16 bit floating point. They'll generate a set of outputs. They'll go through quantization to render it into an into an eight bit integer form. Frequently, when you do that, there's various kinds of uh, things that you have to watch out for, and you know so that your translator that does the quantization ha- will efficiently do the conversion, and it will do it in a way that won't cost you much accuracy. So this middle column of things is uh, our novel. Uh, algorithmic elements that the team had to develop in order to be able to translate their trained up model into a form that would run efficiently on the car with a minimum loss of accuracy. So that's what's in the middle category here. Got it. And, and then the stuff on the right, this is basically um, uh, sort of pretty conventional compiler optimization stuff where you, you, uh, you know, I've got a piece of code, I wanna turn it into a binary that runs really fast. And uh, there are various kinds of optimizations that I can do when, at, when I do that translation where I look for redundancies and I remove them, or I look for ways that the code could map better onto the hardware and the software automatically figures that out and refactors the code to get it running. So this is con- cl- more classical sort of optimization stuff. So they're doing all kinds of stuff on on here. They're doing some really novel stuff uh, to uh, you know to map the problem on onto the domain of the hardware they have. They're doing stuff that basically deals with the limitations of the hardware, specifically that they've got this improving intake actually. And then they're doing some advanced but conventional uh, compiler optimization type stuff. That's this third category. And then he shows the like what they got at the end of it. Uh, 70, 75 million parameters, 9.6 millisecond latency, eight watt power. So is that the, yeah. So that's just a metric for like what they were able to achieve. Got it. 75 million parameters. That's the size of a neural network. It's not small. It's not- It's the FSD
0: neural network, right?
1: Yeah, the FSD lanes network, it It looks like, is 75 million parameters. It runs in ten milliseconds. It has nine point six milliseconds latency on whatever the subset of the hardware is, and it takes yeah. uh, eight watts of power to run. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know what's a good explanation for this stuff? Um, This is more technical details about how they're doing optimization to make it fit well in the car. So the th- two, some of the upper blocks are like the structure of neural networks. Uh, yeah, it's. I'm not going to have a good explanation for this one. <laughs> That's going to be concise and Thank meaningful. Uh, OK, compiler tool chain. Um OK, the a compiler takes human written code and converts it into the binary format that you can run directly on the hardware. I, uh, and uh, more broadly, um, so compilers, once upon a time, compilers just you know did whatever they could, they needed to do to just make some minimum some basic binary representation. But as code becomes more complicated, and as the trade offs on the hardware become you know more complicated, uh, y- it becomes uh, possible to build compilers that understand, that extract the intention from the code, and try to figure out a better way to map that onto the hardware that they're being asked to create a binary for than just the most straightforward thing. And this is what optimizing compilers do. Optimizing compilers can get arbitrarily complicated depending on how complex that mapping is. Like how deep are they going into what the code is trying to accomplish to refactor it and how sophisticated a a model of the hardware are they operating from in order to extract the most performance out of all the different elements? Remember the the FSD, it's got you know it has two it has two FS, FSD chips in the hardware three box. Each one of those FSD chip. E- they have two different independent, really large matrix multipliers that kind of run as a standalone engine. They have several CPU cars, CPU cores, several GPU cores, and then they have all these DMA engines and stuff too. Plus, they have bandwidth limitations interconnecting all these things, and bandwidth limitations going off chip to the uh, to the flash memory, which it loads code from, and DRAM where it stores intermediate products and whatnot. It also has a very large on chip memory and caches and whatnot. So a really good optimizing compiler has to have a really good model of how all of those parts on both of those chips, including all the DRAM and everything, interact so that when it comes up with a formulation for the binary that's going to run on that, it's extracting as much as possible as it can out of the hardware to, for in order to achieve the intention that the code was written to do. This is a really complicated technical task. And the more complicated the hardware gets, the harder it becomes. Tesla's basically developing their own optimizing compilers. They have these deep understandings of all the widgets that go into their FSD chip and, uh, and can extract the intention of the code from the way that their system builds the code in order to do this mapping. So all of that stuff is the compiler tool chain. So a, a compiler tool chain is a compiler, but it's a compiler that's built in multiple modules where you have different pieces that run and each one of them does a different chunk of the optimization process. So anyway, a lot of this is just basically technical details that would be interesting to somebody who was in that space for doing this kind of stuff. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh Yeah, so here they're going into uh, some of the uh, methods that the that their compiler tool chain is using to optimally map the code intention onto the hardware that they have. So these this this top blocks SOC A and SOC B, these are the two FSD chips. And each of them has. I talked about these big matrix multiply. They call those trip zero and trip one. So you can see sock A has trip zero and trip one, and sock B has trip two and trip three. Uh, and then sock A also has a GP, GPU, CPUs, right? And the th- this is basically a profiler graph. A profiler graph basically shows you. When your code is running, um, what resources is it using and how is it using them and how long does it take? So they're basically drawing some graphs right here that show when they run, uh, when they run, a, you know, when FSD is running on this, uh, like how much, how are they scheduling mm-hmm. the subsets? of the of the FSD code to run them on the different elements that are going on. So you can see that on the right here, they've color coded occupancy network, lanes network, moving objects network, traffic controls and road sign network, path planning network. So these are five different major subsets of of the uh, neural networks that are running on the car. And I think uh, yeah. So the color it's, coding.
0: It's interesting yeah. they're they're getting more into path planning networks. So, I mean. Before yeah. planning was more it seems like it was mostly heuris- heuristics and then is this kind of more of a the the networks on the previous
1: uh, mm. on the previous FSD thing where we, we talked about the, the the scenario, you know, for instance when they had the yeah. the um, pedestrian crossing and they had we had the car crossing and you had to make the decision about like would you turn in front of the pedestrian after the pedestrian but in front of the car or after the car so that's a path planning thing and in the in the process of searching through the tree of possibilities some of the evaluations that they do are small networks that basically give you an evaluation of like the goodness of this choice Mm -hmm. given all the context that goes into it so those are part of the path planning stuff
0: yeah. The path planning networks also, um, they include the new networks that like, deal with um, I forget the, the terminology, but, but what a human driver would do or comfort to the human, um, yeah. like those networks as well, right?
1: It, yeah, actually, uh, you know, uh, I don't know the exact terminology that Tesla uses to describe yeah. these things. They're, they're gonna have multiple neural networks involved in their path planning. And I don't know which one of them they call the path planning network, right? They're yeah. probably whatever the biggest one, the oldest one that they had, it gets that name. And then the others have some variation on that name. Yeah. So I don't know which component of path planning is running on this network that they call the path planning network, but it's probably involved in path planning. <laughs> so. Got it. Got it. All right. Uh, anyway. So we're, what they we're seeing on this graph is is uh, is essentially they're they're showing us how they've taken this neural network or this set of neural networks, and I think I asked somebody and they said there were a hundred, or maybe I heard someplace that there were roughly a hundred things that get scheduled on onto the thing. They break it up into into chunks and they run it on the, and they run it on the hardware and they partition it across the hardware in a way that makes optimal. You know where you want to keep your hardware as busy as possible because you want to make good use of it. Uh, And that requires you to like put the data in the right place, be running things on the processor that are a good match to it because they have GPUs and they have CPUs and then they have the trips. And the trips, like anything you can run on them, they run really, really fast because they're the lion's share. They're way over 99% of all the compute is in the trips. Uh, but the GPUs are useful and the CPUs are useful and they can do some stuff that you can't do on the trips. So a lot of processes, like you can see the moving objects network here, these, uh, it's blue. You can see it's got chunks that run on the trips where, you know, DMA in is where you they, you know, they bring in the data. Compute is the, tri- is, the, is the multiplier actually doing those operations and whatnot. And then DMA out is where the results come out of that trip and they get written back to memory. And then you can see after the DMA out, you can see that the CPU does a bunch of operations in blue or the GPU does a bunch of operations. And then there's some CPU operations at the end. So they've, okay. they've basically taken this network and they've broken it up into, uh, into some parts that run on the multipliers, the trips, some parts that run on the GPU, some that run on the CPU. And apparently the flow is, first we we toss the heavy lifting into the trip Right. And trip zero and we've broken the problem up. So some of it runs on trip zero and some runs on trip one. And then as we get the output products, those outputs go to the GPU and the GPUs do the parts that the trips can't do. And then the CPUs do the do the final thing and probably do the mapping into the into the set of parameters that are used by the heuristics, or they might be doing the heuristic work itself that contributes to um, basically making the decisions for how to control the vehicle. And similarly for the other things, the occupancy networks, you see the same thing in the, with the orange kind of waterfall. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we can also see that you can kind of see how they break up these two things between the two between the two SOCs. So there's the two FSD chips, SOC A and SOC B. And so you can see that like occupancy networks uh, and let's see what the moving objects network, which is the blue stuff, it may it it entirely runs on sock A. Um, but you've got some stuff like the occupancy network; it runs some on sock A and some of it runs on sock B. And then there's some things like the lanes network, the green one, that's mostly running on sock B. In, in any case, they've got this scheduler that has sock A and sock B, and it treats it as a unified set of compute resources. And then it figures out how to how to take what it's trying to do, like all of these different neural network tasks, and then distribute it optimally across the hardware that is available inside the car. So you get the results as quickly as possible with the least power and the least, you know, sort of latency and, and so forth. Um, once again, this is fascinating to people who work on this stuff, even though it probably most of the the audience that's watching us is going to just seem like a lot of like noisy detail, mm. but uh, they're they're demonstrating a level of maturity in this in the product and in, in FSD by showing us the class of problems which are currently like on the tip of st- of you know things that they're that they're uh, finding challenging and interesting to work on that are making significant contributions to the project right now. Okay. Okay. This is uh, (laughs) a, I thought this was pretty funny. (laughs) They showed this picture, which is just basically, I don't know, it's like a 100,000 node, you know, graph that they randomly mapped into three space or whatnot. And I think the point of this is just like, hey, the stuff we're doing is really complicated. Like when you try to make a visualization of it, it's just noise, (laughs) it's kind of silly. Um, Okay. This is auto labeling. Um, so uh, I think what we wa- get walked through on auto labeling here is, so they, they've got a set of auto labeling does a, a, a bunch of stuff, right? And it's a complicated process because they take these clips from the car and they have to go into this machine that uh, sort of pre-digests them by running back and forth over all the video and correlating the video from all the different cameras together and cuz it's trying to build a ground truth and then once it constructs a ground truth it wants to take that ground truth and use it to label all of that video that went into it then it's also got bits and pieces that are going to be you know a human interfaces so the operators can see what's going on debug it figure out when something you know review the output product and make sure that it makes sense and all that kind of stuff so How to provide supervision from over a million intersections. Okay, so supervision is uh, the neural networks, almost all the neural network training that Tesla does, the the large bulk of it is supervised training. In supervised training, you have a neural network, which is a box that's going to go into your system. And you have decided this is the kind of input I'm going to give it. And this is the kind of output I want to have come out of it. And the way you train it is you take lots of examples of inputs and the correct output, the output that you want, and you use that to train the network. You give it, you give it inputs and it the neural network it, as it's being trained, it'll 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 guess what the output is based on what it knows so far. And then you compare that to the output you want it to produce. And you provide an error signal that goes back through the neural network, and it adjusts all the little weights. So you do this a lot of times. You do this for all of your training samples, and that's how you train up a network. So this question here, how to how to provide supervision, is basically um, how do we uh, we have a million intersections that that are um, that we have a lot of data on that. Uh, that our fleet has gathered. So how do we how do we use the auto labeler to use that to create the labels, the training data that we need? That's what this phrase means. And that's what we're gonna get walked through here.
0: Got it. How are you holding up? You need a break? <laughs> good, good. Actually, no, I'm holding up actually pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Do you need a break or? Okay? Now I'm
1: doing okay, but okay. I don't, you know, what know at what point my audience is going to nod off. Well, this stuff is super exciting to me. So yeah, no, this is
0: actually it. this is you're getting into some good stuff here. So, yeah, people watching can always pause, come back. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they can take a bathroom <laughs> break. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, uh, so this is an interesting question. So now the auto labeler it does all kinds of stuff. Like this is not the only thing the auto labeler does. So the in this uh, talk. We're getting walked through just like, you know, how, you know, intersections are a thing. Um, they're a complicated problem that we're dealing with right now. We have this language of lanes thing. We have these other things going on. You know, we have a vision Says on top of the language of lanes, we have the vision network that has to that has to look at an intersection, try to understand what's going on. So, in order to train all of these neural networks, we need lots of good ground truth. We need lots of training data. An auto labeler's job is to basically take the raw f- input that you get back, all of these vi- these eight camera video clips that come from the car, and turn it into ground truth, and turn that ground truth into labels you can use for training neural networks. So, um, okay. So-, so on this slide. We're, uh, we're getting, uh, you know, he's we're four slices in time 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021. How were they generating supervision? So, like back in 2018, um, uh, they were working in image space, which is mean that uh, they didn't have 3D. They were all of their labels were in the camera's field of view, right? So, it's telling us, you know, they didn't have a 3D label. That's unknown. The reprojection. So, this is how, how accurate you know, how accurate is is your label going to be when it's projected back out into reality? So these are basically, this this column underneath here shows um, characteristics of this labeling process and whether you the, the green ones are good, the red ones are not good, the gray ones are kind of intermediate. So you can see in 2018, they've got what, one, two, three, four red ones and three green ones, right? In terms of like... Criteria you would use to evaluate how good this procedure was for labeling data, right? So, in so in 2019, they had they called single trip. So, I guess single trip is a car traversing some scene. It looks like they're integrating all of the cameras, right? Uh, and then, uh, so they're generating some ground truth from that, and then they're pushing that back to labeling and using this approach. They uh, they got some, you you can see what the transitions were from 2018 to 2019. So the 3D label, there wasn't any at all in 2018. And then in 2019, they got some, but it was a manual label. Like in in 2019, a human being had to go in and say, oh, that's a fire hydrant. The system wasn't automatically identifying the fire hydrant and labeling it as such. So it would generate the 3D, but a human would have to look at the scene and label all the objects in the 3D space. So the reprojection so that the pixel wise accuracy it actually degraded a little bit but they still have it as green so they must have considered it good enough okay so for this uh,
0: for the single trip manual or 3d label mm-hmm. it says manual so is this talking about th- um 3d labels and spe- specifically or
1: okay so each one of these columns is how they were doing labeling for data like generating the supervisory signal they need for training how they were doing labeling at each point in time and the strengths and weaknesses at that point that's what this slide is about
0: yeah, so when it says under single trip, 3D mm-hmm. label. So right. in 2018, I say that they didn't have 3D labels, I'm guessing, right? They're just labels That's on why the, it's the image, right? right. But it, in 2019, did they have 3D labels? Yes, this says they did. Like what would, because how are they doing a 3D label? like Manually. <laughs> yeah, but do they even have a view that will show 3D? Yeah, like,
1: because the single, okay... So once again, on the, on 2018, the image space, everything is its own frame. And yeah. every label is like, you know, a labeler, they get a frame and they label all the objects in it by drawing circles and giving them names and that kind of stuff or drawing outlines. In 2019, they had started doing the video training from vision thing, right? So, right. but sing, single trip is, is I have a clip from a car driving yeah. through some yeah. scene. That's why it's single trip right uh-huh. okay. because what we learn is that later they have multi trip ones where they'll have a particular intersection and they can they can accumulate the data from multiple different vehicles traversing that intersection and each vehicle makes the ground truth of that intersection which they save from trip to trip better and better and better but in 2019 they were they they were training from video or they were running the auto labeler on single trips and they were generating like 3d and whatnot but you know, it wasn't as good as what they have today because of things they've added since then. So that's would what you
0: we're say, I mean, in. 3D label, would it just be simply like just labeling the video? Like what's in the video over frames. So like a fire hydrant throughout the video clip, would that be a 3D label or is that something different?
1: No, 3D. So for to do a 3D label, you have to build a 3D scene. So remember, yeah. the car drives through some environment and you get a bunch of video from all the cameras. Mm-hmm. Um so to turn that into a 3D scene, you you have to basically process all that video and create and uh, create a th- figure out what the 3D ground truth is. In other words, you okay. construct a 3D model of what the scene was that the car must have driven through, in order for the cameras to produce the video they produced. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean okay. in 2019, I mean at Autonomy Day, it seems like Karpathy was talking about some 3D Kind of reconstruction yeah. or stuff but that was it seemed more experimental or very early on in their their journey so i would imagine these manual 3d label labels it's not on a big scale right we're talking about in 2019 it's probably-
1: well so in as of 2019 um remember so autopilot is like uh it's it's it evolves so in 2019, when they started doing this, they might've had some neural networks that they were starting to train with the 3D data. And they might've been using some 3D data mixed in with their image space data, right? In other words, they had a system that was built and trained on image space data. And then you start introducing the 3D data. Well, the first thing you do when you do that is you make 3D you use the 3D pipeline to give you better image space data. And in fact, when when they first described auto labeling to us, that was the process that was described. That is, the car drives through a scene, we generate a 3D uh, representation of that scene from all of the video, and then we, take, we label it in 3D. Okay. So once you build your 3D model, a human being looks at the 3D model manually and says, that's a fire hydrant, that's a tree, that's a pedestrian, and so on, right? Then once you've got all those labels, you run this auxiliary process that takes all those labels and connects them back to the frames. Like for instance, you got a fire hydrant, each camera that that saw the fire hydrant at some point in the progression of the vehicle through the frame, it gets a label for fire hydrant where for the portions of the pixels that map onto the fire hydrant. So the human labeler only has to label the fire hydrant once and that gets pushed back. To all of the frames that saw that fire hydrant you only do one label so it's a big advantage over the image space where a human has to draw every outline in every frame um got it but the thing is at that point in time you're probably pushing that back to your images and you're still using the image space data to train your neural network right because that's what you've been doing so that's the quickest way to get this on board but as you get more and more 3D data and later when you go to BevNet, so you have a top down view that you also want. Now those 3D labels are also useful because they are supervision for the BevNet training.
0: Got it, okay. So let's talk about this 2020 top view, I guess the BevNet view. Um, Okay. How does it change? So in 2019, let's say they reconstructed 3D scene Manually, mm-hmm. people are going in, labeling the objects in the in the 3D video scene. They, that gets right. basically applied to each image and then they use the images to train. But in right. 2020, what changes with this top view and how does the labeling change?
1: Well, so in 2020, what I'm getting from this is, this is when they're starting to use ba- the bird's eye view, the top down yeah. view. So that starts being an output that the neural networks in the car are trained to produce. Um, So, you know, they're just basically each one of these, uh, these are not like major, you know, phase changes. These are four points in time and they're showing us what they were doing at that point in time, right? So there's a progression between them, you know, but that's probably the way to take this. So anyway, in 2022, at some point they're doing the BevNet thing and they described the 3D label as aligned. And I'm not sure how to interpret that um it may be so at some point oh reconstructed
2: yeah
1: um at some point uh the uh auto labeler itself starts running neural networks that identify objects and 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 apply initially it would be a tentative label like the auto labeler would basically say fire hydrant and it would tentatively label something a fire hydrant. And then later a human would validate that. And as the system gets better and better, pretty soon the human isn't the humans just spot checking, uh, to make sure that the, that it's, it's getting all the fire hydrants. Right. Mm, and eventually, you know, the end goal is humans never have to worry about the fire hydrants. Cause the system's really good at spotting fire hydrants with the neural networks. That are running in the as part of the auto labeling process. So I'm imagining a line here is one of the intermediate stages for getting that getting the auto labeler to generate those labels because they're still pushing them back to the input frames. Yeah. But in addition to that, they're now generating a top-down view, which is used to provide guidance for the um, for the bevnet.
0: Got it. I mean, could it could one interpretation of a line be that um, you have humans manually just, or reviewing to see what's misaligned, what, what labels are out of place. So you just fix those only versus 2019, you're actually labeling everything like from scratch. But 2020. Yeah, I think manual
1: to be the, you know, human beings are the bulk yeah. of the work on doing the labeling for, for, for the 3D labels, for generating the 3D yeah. labels.
2: Yeah.
0: And for 2020 perhaps it oh you know
1: so a next step would be like if you have if you have labels that you can already generate at the frame level then maybe what you do is you take the frame labels that you're generating and you project them into the 3d space to generate your uh, 3d label and and it's derived by aligning the various frames so essentially you have an alignment process that you're applying to Uh in other words your core oh. labeling uh, um, method is still in the frame space. Right? Uh, so what you're it. doing is you've got a system that labels in the frame space, and then you align all of those frame labels to generate the 3D label. Uh,
0: I see, so for example, if there's a fire hydrant, you're looking through the each frame to yeah. label the fire hydrant. So basically, hydrant maybe you have 500 out. frames where the, where yeah. the
1: fire hydrant fe- was in view, and in 492 of those, you know the 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 frame network. I correctly identified a fire hydrant and drew an outline for it. Yeah. So yeah. then the algorithm basically takes those 498 those 500 frames, and figures out where the fire hydrant must have been in three space, in by by overlapping all of those mm. all of those by aligning all of the individual frames. So then right. once it's got once it has that, it can generate a 3D label. And, and it could like get, you know, put the label in the missing frames to the ones, yeah, that didn't, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, maybe the fire hydrant is, is obstructed yeah. by a tree or a pedestrian or something in between. You can still label it. Right. yeah, yeah. But more importantly, in this case, they're just talking about the 3d label. So they're generating the 3D labels. This is probably what it is. They're aligning frames in order to get their 3D labels at that Got point, it. and then so in the multi trip in in uh, 2021, they're reconstructing the fire hydrant in 3D. So they're building a 3D model of it, and then and that lets that generates their 3D model. Their sorry, their 3D label. Got it. So what else do we see? Labeling per clip. So we see that how the hour uh, the time uh, changes, right? So in in 2018, they were spending 533 you know, human hours, I take it, to do the image space labeling. And then this is to do one clip's worth of, of labeling. Then on the single trip, it was three and a half hours. And this is probably because you have human beings going through manually labeling stuff mm-hmm. in 3D. And then in top view, once they have the 3D label alignment thing working, now it's only taking 0.1 hour human hour on average to do a clip.
2: Got it. And the okay. multi-trip,
1: it looks like they so, still
0: have. So for multi-trip 2020 on reconstructed, so what I'm getting is they reconstruct a 3D scene um, from the video input. And from that 3D reconstructed scene, that's where they get the pull the 3D labels or identify all the 3D objects in that reconstructed scene, I'm guessing. And then from that you back propagate it to label all the video
1: well this is once again that column that you're reading out of is just 3d label Uh, i think it's just basically saying where does the 3d label come from so uh you know in 2020 the 3d label was being generated by aligning the labels in the frames that that contribute to that section of the 3d uh, volume and in 2021 now they have multiple trips so in addition to having, you know, the views from one car, you have views from other cars at other times, traversing the same intersection. And so they've got even more data, including maybe seeing the fire hydrant from various other angles than just the ones from the one car. And so now, now what they can try to do is they can try to build a 3d model in their representation of the fire hydrant.
0: Got it. So would you say, at least with this auto labeling, kind of, snapshot that they're doing a lot of most of their 3d or auto labeling with multi-trip type of situations where they yeah. have more than one clip on of a I think the intersection. think they're doing all place. of it with
1: multi-trip now right just like okay. what they're telling us
0: so if if they only have like one clip of of a place they're not doing really auto labeling or 3d auto labeling from that
1: uh you know what places are they only going to have one what what place in the world is there where they took a clip and only one Tesla ever drove, <laughs> right?
2: Like it could if, be. Yeah.
1: The thing is, like if it's in your neighborhood and you're the only guy in town with a Tesla, yeah. you've probably driven through the intersection more than once, right? right? So like it doesn't have to be other people's cars. That's be Your car yeah, multiple yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. That's it's I, there. Probably are places where I yeah. mean, there's no question. There's going to be sparsity of data. Yeah. you know they're gonna be places where they don't have a lot of data but the thing is if they get it remember the point of this stuff they're not trying to build a neural network that memorizes the world by having seen everything yeah what yeah. they're trying to do is build a really large collection of really high quality labeled data so you know so if there are places in the world that only one car has ever been through you just don't take those you you pick yeah. the You pick the top, I mean, million intersections that they, you know, you you take the top million intersections that you have the most data on and maybe the one millionth best one that you have, you've got, you know, 3000 vehicle traversals or something like that, which might be plenty to make a really, really good model of the intersection.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Makes sense.
1: So anyway, we could go through all the boxes in this, but I'll leave it to the viewers to read through. So just to, so... The columns are points in time and, and they basically, they have a label for each one that, that roughly describes the procedure they were using. And then the rows 3D label is, you know, how are they deriving the label in 3D space for all of the objects? Uh, reprojection is probably how accurate, if, if how accurate do the, are the labels when you reapply them back, when you project them back into the original image frames. So obviously less pixels is better. Apparently seven pixels is kind of so-so in 2020, but they're at sub three pixel now. Uh, ah, So topology is probably how they, how this is the extraction of the lane interconnect topology, right? So, you know, they, in uh, 2018, they had local, went to uh, the trajectory, but you know, because your your knowledge of the tr- of the topology depends on what lanes the vehicle actually took in the one clip because this is single trip, right? Um, in the top view, now they have unlimited. Oh, because you can you know uh, you can combine multiple different. I guess they're combining different things in top view. Yeah, they must be. They must have some kind of uh, of uh, thing going on there. And then in multi trip, they're doing reconstruction. So they're reconstructing the entire intersection from all the traversals they have. And then they produce a topology based on that reconstruction. So the labeling clip, this is like how many human hours it takes per clip. Obviously this has gone way down over time. Compute is like how many computer hours got get used to process each clip. And, you know, it went from not needed to one hour up to two hours in 2020, and now it's down to 30 minutes. Scalability, so this is, you know, uh, how much more stuff can you do without having to add more people, right? So, or or rather, how how many people do you need to make it go? or how many computers that scalability too, and then the bottom one is engineering effort and the engineering effort is one where we've seen like, the engineering effort has gone up over time. <laughs> so we can see why engineers are a critical resource even more critical than than ever. Okay, that one took a while.
0: Do you think this will that engineering effort will go down eventually for auto labeling?
1: It's. I think the engineering effort going higher is probably a function of their ambitiousness. Yeah. Um, so my guess is it probably stays very high until uh, until they feel like auto labeling has gotten about as good as it can reasonably get, and then you know then it then it'll get less development and become more of a straightforward production refinement process. Got it. Five million hours of manual labeling converts (laughs) is it turns into twelve hours on cluster for ten thousand trips. Wow, that's pretty impressive. I didn't notice this the first time around. Five million hours of manual labeling is now twelve hours on the cluster, and that produces ten thousand trips worth of clips of data. Wow. so now, uh, w- probably in these following slides, we will find out how good our guesses were. <laughs> okay, steps to solve automated 3D labeling and multi-strip re- reconstruction. So they're walking us through multi-strip, which is what they do today, right? They, um, they extract a trajectory using odometry. So odometry is like you know the IMU and wheel turns and that kind of stuff. And then they're telling us what the re- resources are, what they look for, and that what the output is. Six degree of free trajectory at 100 hertz, 3D structure and road detail, camera sensor calibration. OK. Uh, so the next step is multi-trip reconstruction. So then what they're going to do is they're going to take multiple trips, and they have to align them based on common features, right? Uh, Say so do do course, course alignment, pairwise matching, Joint optimization and surface refinement. So these are all just basically different heuristic methods that you would apply to, you know, these. these you've got these overlapping data fields, but they're slightly, they they're not going to match perfectly, because you know there's some error rate on each trip that goes through. There will be distortions and misinterpretations and that kind of stuff. And so you want to go through a process where you take these and you overlay them on one another and you average out the errors. So how do you do that? Um, you know. Course alignment, pairwise matching, joint optimization, and surface refinement are the techniques that are being used to do this. And then they're giving us a sense of how much resources it takes uh, one to two hours per reconstruction. That's, wow, that's pretty fast. Okay, another step, or maybe this is just a, they're showing us another, a completed result. Is that right yeah okay so this this initial shot is like we have a couple of cars that we are aligning we have two or three trips and then this other one is okay now we've taken a lot of trips not just over a single section of road but multiple sections of road and now you can see that we've we've managed to build a fairly detailed model of a lot of road and it's interconnect and multiple intersections and so forth right Still at the same step. Okay. Auto labeling. So the reconstruction is they do all of that alignment, right? And then they have they've built a, a data structure, which is the which is the the output of all of that alignment, which is a 3D map of the static structures in that environment that they can okay. now label and use Quick
0: to- question. Quick question mm-hmm. about the alignment. The, uh, so reconstructing when they have multiple trips, is that reconstructing and just aligning all done automatically? Like it's automated, of course. right? Yeah, I'm guessing.
1: Oh, that's what this this stuff, they don't list any human hours on this. Yeah, I'm imagining that it's a uh, it, probably the human effort that goes into this is probably engineers like this, you know, like, oh, that didn't work well tracking down the bug and fixing yeah. it. That's probably the human
0: effort. Okay, so could you actually go through these step these steps for what uh, what you can gather from them. So course alignment, that's basically the lanes, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, so you. So if you have two different trips that are basically that are similar, but not identical, then you're going to take chunks out of them that are most similar, and you're just going to do a pretty brute force alignment of the data that that each of those vehicles took on the chunk that matches the other vehicle, that would be course line. So pairwise matching, that'll be so say that you've got dozens and dozens of vehicles right that have traversed one particular section so pairwise matching is a is a is a process of refinement where you where you take two and you match and you 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 essentially you take two of them and then you reconcile their differences and so the output is another one and you bring another one in and then you reconcile those differences and so on so each time you're matching two pairs
0: of cars uh, or or lanes or objects or just anything? It would be
1: roadway sections that were traversed by a vehicle following approximately the same trajectory.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, Joint optimization. So this is joint optimization is different from pairwise matching, where basically you take all the data, you stack it together, and then you run a heuristic across it that averages out all of the variations between it, but it treats it as a whole stack. So probably these two processes, pairwise matching and joint optimization, are going to produce you know, slightly different takes that have strengths and weaknesses. And then you can go through reconciling those two, uh, surface refinement. So surface refinement, that's, I don't know how to interpret that one. I imagine it's referring to the road surface mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, um, the, um, what the vehicles see, what you see is a surface, whether it's the surface of a tree, the surface of a building or the surface of the road, you know the thing that you're that you see is a reflection of light off of something and that something is a planar surface or a you know it's a surface with some kind of shape so my guess is they're probably going through a process here where they've done they've done all of this alignment and now they want to like in, increase the 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 um resolution of the result that they that they have so it may be that the earlier stuff is done at lower resolution. And then at this mm-hmm. final stage, they dial it back up to the resolution that they want to have for doing their labels. Uh-huh.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so oh, incidentally, I'm speculating <laughs> on a lot of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I listened to the dialogue and I, and I got it on the first pass, but I didn't attempt to memorize what he was saying about all the individual bullet yeah. points. So if I go back and look at it, I'll probably find some errors here. Um. Okay, auto labeling. So this is like what we talked about before. So once you've done the reconstruction, mm-hmm. now you you know the auto labeler itself does auto labeling where it's got its own neural networks that it runs across the internal representations in order to come up with the labels that it's going to apply the three D labels that apl- that are applied in the reconstructed uh, uh, ground truth.
0: Okay, so. James, I want to take a step back, a quick second. Mm-hmm. So, what what does this this let's say reconstructed auto labeling? What does it do to the neural network's ability to for vision? Right? Does it? How does it improve its So, does it improve? I'm guessing not just that scene that it was trained on, but I'm guessing you know it'll also apply to other new scenes, right? New places that the car goes to because it will somehow you know use that training to come up with um better abilities right that's a it's a good question
1: so stepping back to the original point of this the point of this is to provide supervisory signal when you're training in the neural network right so you want you want it's a uh, carpathy you know he comes back and he beats on this thing that like training the training corpus the data you use to train is uh, your neural networks is a really important component. It uh, frequently overlooked, like, you know, architects of these systems, we get really into like the shape of the neural network, the hyperparameters you use for training the neural network and that kind of stuff. And Karpathy frequently points out the data is really important. You want a large, clean, diverse data set. Like you want lots of examples. You want them diverse. You want them to have a, as the as much variety as you encounter in the real world. As much of that as you can, you want to, you want to capture. And you and this is the thing the auto-labeler. I mean, first of all, you want lots of data and all that data needs to be labeled. It needs to be diverse, which means you need even more data because the rare, in order to capture stuff that's rare, you have to. You have to digest a lot of data so that you've got a decent number of representations of the uncommon stuff. So that makes, you know, essentially the volume you need to ingest and label even larger. But at the end of it, you need really good labels. Every bad label that you have in your data is going to cost you like a thousand good labels. Like it takes so many properly labeled Samples to overcome one improperly labeled sample. So, a really important part of this whole process is quality control, is knowing like we're generating, you know, we're, we're ingesting an enormous amount of data, we're labeling it. How do we do quality control, you know, so that every single label is as good as it can be? Well, automate it, <laughs> right? Make it as automated as you can. You want tons, you want this torrent of data coming in. And you want computers to go back and forth over it using some very consistent, very, uh, you know, reliable, well-understood process for generating those labels. And then you use those labels directly. So all of this stuff, the auto-labeler is about automatically labeling data so that you have lots and lots and lots of good, clean, diverse, properly labeled data that you then use to train your neural networks. The The more your data is, is clean and diverse, and the more you have, the more it is the case that you have plenty of it, the better the accuracy of your neural network is going to be when you train it. So what this does is this provides the raw material that the training process needs to do to make the neural network accurate.
0: Okay, so basically through these reconstructed 3D scenes and auto labeling, we get more accurate labels, right?
1: Yeah. What you then- get you you get the the ultimate is you get more accurate neural networks running in the car because you had accurate labels on yeah. lots of diverse data that was that could be used to train those neural networks exactly. before you put them in the car
0: Yeah, so the more accurate labels from these 3D reconstructed scenes are being fed into the training of these neural networks to improve their accuracy. The
1: auto-labeler makes the training corpus. The training corpus is a set of data that you use for training neural networks. And remember, the training a neural network is, I have an input and I have the correct output, the output the neural network should generate. And I have lots and lots and lots of examples of those for every single neural network that I'm going to train. So, lots of examples might be like a million. So, I have a million, or ten million, or a hundred million uh, inputs with accurate outputs to go with it. And I'm going to use the combination of that input and that accurate output to train the neural network, yeah. right? So, I need lots and lots and lots of those. And the the uh, the the once again, the point of having a lot there's yeah. it might be that there's a perfect or really, really good, like 1 million examples you can use to train a neural network. But for some of the things that you want in the training corpus, some of the examples are gonna be things that are uncommon in the real world. So the auto labeler is going to train, it's going to generate a lot of labeled data, a lot more than you actually need for the training because the, un- the statistically rare things need to be overrepresented in your training corpus. And as a consequence, because they're statistically rare, you have to capture and label a lot more data to get enough of those. So oh, this is probably one of the reasons, like one of the things we learned on, on, uh, on um, AI Day, this year was that they throw out they throw away, away a lot of data. They have a 30 petabyte uh storage cluster that they use for storing all kinds of stuff. And some of that is raw input that goes into the lot auto labeler. Some of it is the intermediate product, some of it's the final product, and some of it's the training corpus. Well, they don't need to keep all of it. But for instance, you know, uh, you know, my auto labeler might generate um you know, 10,000, for, for for each of maybe 10,000 different things that I care about, I might have, you know, many thousands of examples, you know, or millions of examples that I'm going to use for training. But uh, because the, the statistical distribution of stuff I want to train on doesn't match the statistical distribution of reality, I need my corner cases, my edge cases need to be overrepresented in my training data so that I do a good job on those. Like, then the training isn't gonna work very well on things where you have too few examples. So what happens is that in your training corpus, you need some things that are rare, you need to be overrepresented. And to capture enough examples of those, you have to overcapture the other stuff. And what that means is you throw it away. You're not actually gonna use it to train. So you toss a lot of that stuff out. And and over time as they get further and further down the curve of needing more and more edge cases and that kind of stuff, you know, one of the things that's going to happen is that of the data that they, that the auto-labeler generates, they may find themselves using a, a smaller and smaller proportion of that at, at the end, as things go on, you still have to run the auto-label. You still have to generate all of this data. But the thing is, the, thing, the, the things you're looking for might be, as they become more rare, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're fishing more and more fish in order to get fewer and fewer of the, you know, golden ones or whatever that you need at that
0: Got it. at that point okay. in time. Okay, so for this reconstructing scene, so the input isn't the 3D scene, it's actually just the video clips, right? That, the input is a raw data from the car, yeah. Right, okay, and then it's not just, okay, but it's actually multiple video clips that are feeding into this yep. reconstructed 3D so scene. Like you get,
1: each okay. each and, trip generates a reconstruction, but just of the stuff that that car could see. And then you overlay those multiple things you know so this car goes this way this car goes that mm-hmm. way another car comes this way another one goes here some of them are during the day some are at night some are with the sun there some are with the sun here the parked cars move uh-huh. right and you take all that you know each one of those cars produces stuff and then you do this pairwise thing group wise thing yeah. or whatnot and you take what each car saw and you distill out the closest approximation to what was real to the ground truth, like where was that fire hydrant? Really? This car saw it there, this car saw it there, this other car saw it came the other way and it saw it that hit this place and so on. And yeah. so the more times you see it from the more angles, not just the fire hydrants, every single thing there, it gets seen multiple times from multiple different angles. And this reconstruction pulls all of that data together to build the ground truth. Like, mm-hmm. So what Waymo does is Waymo gets a car and they put a bunch of precision instruments on it and they drive down the road and they microscopically measure what they can see from the road. And then maybe they do it from four or five different angles and they build it. What Tesla does is they run a bunch of cars through the through this road network with different cameras right on them and they produce basically the same data. They use more cars and they use mm-hmm. a different process, but they end up making it and they use it a different way. Waymo's using that data to make this HD map that they're going to use when they drive the car. Tesla's mm-hmm. not doing that. They're not building an HD map that they're going to use to drive the car. They're building a, they're built, they're extracting ground truth so that they can put accurate labels mm-hmm. on all the frames and they can use those to train the neural network. Got so it. The output of the auto labeler is training data for the neural
0: networks. Got it. Okay. So um, let me reconst- re- reconstruct the scene here. So you have, let's say, 100 clips of, of this one I- intersection or place um, that gets used to reconstruct a 3D scene. Um, auto labeler basically you know, identifies everything in that scene um, and then um, uses that to label each of the clips, I- everything inside each of the clips. Right. And then all of that, those hundred clips with their new kind of um, auto-labeled, more accurate labels gets fed into the neural nets to tra- yeah. for training. Is that basically and the really process? important
1: part of this is because you're generating the 3D ground truth, yeah. not only can you label what the cameras see. Like you can go back to say, well, this camera on this car at this point in time, it was looking that way and this was in its field of view. And I can label, you know, pedestrian tree or whatnot because the 3D model that corresponds to that, like I've labeled it and I've cross correlated it a hundred ways from never. And I'm super confident of every single thing that's in that 3d scene, but I can do another thing. I can look from the top down. Mm -hmm. Now I can look from a position that no car ever saw. And I could say, well, what would it look like Mm -hmm. if I was looking down, right? And I use that for the Bev nets because the Bev nets, they have to make a prediction that no car ever actually sees. Right. Got so it. a big part of building the 3D model is not just labeling the clips that go in. It's it's being able to label novel points of view that couldn't have been seen, uh, you know, from from yeah. that angle. I mean, you can also do stuff with yeah. obstructions or whatnot like you, uh, you know. Uh, you're driving, you're driving, uh, down a road and there's a median, and there's some stuff on the other side of the median, but as you're passing the median, you can't see it. You get to the end of the median and you turn, the car can see down the road and now it knew what was there. Mm. So now you can go back and you can label all those clips with stuff that the camera couldn't see. Well, what's the use of that? What the use of that is that frequently you might want to infer what's there based on the other stuff that you can see. So for instance, Was the curb on the other side of this median, was it painted red or was it painted yellow? Or did it have a stripe or did it not have a stripe? You might, uh, it might be the case that if the neural network is properly trained, it can tell that by looking at the opposite curb. Like it can't see the curb that you're asking it to label but it can see the opposite curb but you're not comfortable with applying that label in this data until you actually see it. Well, the car doesn't see it until it turns at the end of the street, then it can look down the road and it knows what the answer was. But when you do the 3D scene reconstruction and you go back and you label the scenes that the, that the, that the, that the, that the car saw as it was driving along, even though it couldn't see the, that curb that you want to label now, you saw it later. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So you can go back in time and label those things because you got it. So that's why the forward. That's why correlating all this stuff together over time matters because all the different angles that you saw at different times and different cards at different times allows you to fill in all of the data. And it's, it's frequently the case that that neural networks will do a good job of guessing at stuff that they can't see. Like as a human being, you can be, you know, you're driving along and there's a hedge but you know there's another lane with oncoming traffic on the other side of the hedge you just know it because of the car- you know the context that you're in well a neural network if it's only trained on a frame by frame thing it could never guess that there's you know it wouldn't it would never know but you can train a neural network on a, a, a larger set of data that knows things that can't be seen by the camera at the instant the camera is taking the picture and you can still l- label that and the neural network can develop intuition that helps in that whole context yeah. So that just makes everything better. All of the accuracy yeah. elements in that situation improve.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um. Okay. So let's take this. A theor- let's theoretically take it to an extreme. What if Tesla? It seems like this stuff is p- pretty much automated, right? So, um. What What if hypothetically, let's remove the constraints of compute. So let's say hypothetically Tesla was able to do, who knows. You know, a billion clips a day or something crazy, um, and let's say hypothetically there was some diversity, you know, amongst those clips. Um, how would that impact? Like, obviously, it would. My gut feeling it would make, you know, Tesla's perception much more accurate. But is there any way to like, I don't know, um, assess that? Like, is is the main, I guess, limiting factor right now for Tesla in improving vision? Is it? A compute issue then like do they have enough data they're just kind of you know they're compute limited where they're not able to run enough you know let's say auto labeling that they could to improve the system it's just a matter of scaling let's say compute or are there is that just one of kind of many other issues i'm guessing to improve perception
1: um okay dojo is important because compute is a constraint and even even if it's not a constraint today, it's probably a constraint, but it may not be like this critical constraint. It may be a constraint that's, that's on par with other constraints that they have. And, you know, it might be the case that, you know, if they could, if they could get 10 times as much data center for the same price, I'm sure they'd take it and I'm sure they could use it and make good use of it. And so they, you know, they would, to some extent, they would get better results if they just had a lot more compute. Um, But given the cost and the effort to put it in and maintain it and feed it and all that kind of stuff, it might not be as good a use of their engineering resources as other things that they could be doing. It's all very complicated, right? And it's all based on their guesses about what the results would be. And as time goes on, as they encounter various, you know, bugs and problems and obstacles and whatnot, like you learn more about how you should have allocated your engineering resources or your resources overall, and you do that. So So compute is a a constraint to some extent, it will be a much bigger constraint going forward. And that's one of the reasons why Dojo as an insurance policy is an important project for them to move on, but they've got other ones too.
0: Got it. Yeah, because it seems like if you're able to pretty much, you know, in an automated fashion, get ground truth um, from videos and then apply them to, or, and feed that into the training of those clips. It just seems like, I wouldn't say, I don't know, is that the holy grail of you know, improving it's perception? It's really useful. In a
1: sense? It's really useful it's not the thing is it's not like every other constraint you have is like perfectly satisfied yeah so you run into other constraints as your data goes up I mean one of the things that they told us was that they about twenty five percent of their data center time goes into running the auto labeler but another twenty five percent goes into training the occupancy network right so the occupancy network like man that's a really um heavy network to train Mm. like if it's taking that much resources to retrain the occupancy network well the thing is the training of the occupancy network is linear with the amount of data that you use to train it so you know if you had 10 times as much data you know you'd if you have, it's going to take 10 times as long to train the occupancy network. So it's not just the auto labeler. Yeah. I mean, if you, the compute it's used for both of those things. So yeah. if you had 10 times as much compute, you would still be spending a quarter of your time on auto labeling and a quarter of your time on the occupancy network. Cause they'd both be taking, you know, 10 times yeah. as much time now yeah. as, as you scale it up. So how much better does the network get? If you can go up 10 X, yeah. uh, on that. And it's, that's a complicated thing. Like, if the network is exactly the same size, because there's other things you can use compute for too. I can't. Oh, we didn't talk about distillation. So I talked on another podcast recently about distillation. Distillation is a way of basically taking a big neural network and making a smaller neural network. That's just as good, Yeah. right? It's just smaller. So when you run it in the car, now distillation is kind of a compute intensive process, but it's a way of optimizing a neural network down to make it smaller. So when you run in the car, it takes less resources. So one of the constraints that they have on the accuracy that they get in various neural networks is how big, you know, how much neural network they can run in the car, right? Well, you get, you know, if you run distillation on all your networks to distill them down, you get like 10 times as much neural network in your car Mm -hmm. or five times as much neural network for the same thing. That's a pretty expensive process. But like, if you have unlimited compute, you're gonna distill all your networks, right? Because that lets you put the equivalent of a much bigger neural network on the same hardware.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. So. With this three d reconstruction auto labeling, it seems like I mean it kind of highlights in a way Tesla's data advantage or it's kind of leveraging it because Tesla has the fleet, you know they have the data they have diverse data um and they're able to you know find ground truth and feed that in you know to the training it, um it's it's interesting because you would think that, you know, intuitively, like, if there's that the lead would be kind of shrinking as Tesla, like, um, because more parties, more businesses, more companies are motivated to try to catch Tesla. But yeah, how do you look at it? Is Tesla's lead, do you think, growing in terms of, you know, their, their, you know, goal to generalize autonomy? It's or is an it just exponential to- lead. Right. It just so hard it's hard to say. evaluate.
1: you know, if, if you're, you know, 10 X ahead, of, like, and these are Tesla's not, you know, 10 X better on every single dimension. There are all kinds of things that they don't do that aren't as important to them as other people. And other people do those things and put more resources on them and whatnot, right? Like Tesla doesn't spend any time doing sensor fusion with LIDAR, right? It's just like not on their path. So, uh, so there, there are lots of dimensions that Tesla is probably not the you know, the be all end all of what's going on. If we if we just restrict ourselves to this data gather, data auto labeling and that kind of stuff, like I don't, you know, Google probably has or Waymo probably has, you know, something, some automation that they use in labeling data. It's a lot less important to them because they gather a lot less data. So that it's probably not, they probably haven't put as much resources into it as Tesla has, and it's not gonna be as critical to them. Um, you know tesla's data advantage at the fleet their ability to gather more data Uh, If they're going to use it well, they have to put more resources into doing a good job of labeling it and cleaning it and all that kind of stuff. And so it's very likely that they're ahead of everybody else because it's incumbent on them for the approach that they do to be better than other people. So if we're just talking about that aspect of it, like being able to automatically label, you know, produce really good labels on really large amounts of data. Yeah, they're probably way ahead of everybody else. They're probably ten or hundred times or a thousand times ahead of, of of the guy that's in uh, place two. Yeah. Um, so, th- it, you know, it's hard to say. You know, if if uh, if Tesla's, you know, if they're a hundred x the guy in position two, and they move to two hundred x, and the guy in position two, you, you know, if if they double, and the guy in yeah. the guy in position two, he can get ten times better, and he's still fantastically far behind. You know, it's yeah. it it becomes hard to make the comparisons because the the scale of operations yeah. already ludicrously different in certain respects that yeah. are relevant to Tesla. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody is getting now there are other, you know, mobile eye has a lot of cars out there. I don't know what the character of the data that, that they gather is, but it, they, you know, they have certain disadvantages in gathering tons of data and labeling and whatnot. They, you know, consistency, um, you know, the, the connect that they don't have the bandwidth to the vehicles um you know they they don't have control of the vehicle form factor or pattern there's going to have calibration they've got a whole you know they might gather a lot of data but it's going to have constraints on it that tesla's data doesn't have mm-hmm. so i would say it's very unlikely that that mobile eye who's probably i would guess number two in terms of the potential data collection is has anything remotely like this that they're yeah. using the other thing is mobilized approach is not as focused on neural networks as tesla's is that is you know, Mobileye does a lot of things that don't use neural networks that are also really important to them, and they use data in a different way. So they're probably not doing this either.
2: Yeah,
0: makes sense. Um, hey, so another question about this auto-labeling. Um, So how does Tesla, you think, select the clips that they choose to feed into this whole you know, reconstruction auto-labeling? So there's a section later
1: in this uh-huh. presentation, which uh-huh. we may never get to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: that actually, it, it gives some examples of that, and that might be a better place to talk about that particular Okay. Question.
0: Actually, why don't we go back to the slides? Why don't we just um, kind of skip through or briefly go through kind of the remaining yeah, slides? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, auto labeling, it, it was it's worth spending time on auto labeling, because yeah. it's really yeah. important. I mean, they showed us a lot about their auto labeling. Their auto labeling has really advanced. I mean, that slide where they showed us the four mm-hmm. different years. Those are like night and day different advances in the capability yeah. every single year. And they're not done yet, right? It's going to keep growing. Let's see if we can. Uh, okay. So we're pretty much at the end of auto labeling. So, they show about auto labeling new trips, which is basically, you know, we have this ground truth, we have a new trip going into it. And now we can push that data back to that trip without having to do the reconstruction. And then. And then this is kind of an interesting thing. They talk about the situation where, uh, you know, this approach that they have, it allows them, it, I was mentioning before about how, like, sometimes you want to label stuff that the neural network can't see, because even though it can't see that thing, you want it to know it's there from context. You want it to be able to predict that it's there from context. Like that's useful to the neural network to not be able to do it. Well, one of the, one of the ways that you, that you can't see stuff is when the weather changes, dark, foggy, occluded and rainy, right? These are all situations where stuff that normally you could see you can't see, or you can't see as well. You still want to be able to label it. And the thing is these cars that are driving through the dark, foggy, occluded and rainy situations are driving through situations that other cars drove under better visibility. And so they get the benefit of the better labels from the other cars that drove through the scene on better, uh, and, and this is especially important because it's frequently the case that, that the place you most want really good labels is when your visibility is the worst. Right? It's hard to get good labels, but that's a place where having a really high quality label will train the neural network to use the secondary or tertiary contextual elements or optical elements to see the thing you want it to see. That's that would that that is very difficult to extract from first principles from the frame. But if you know it's there because it's part of your ground truth from all of these other trips that you've done, you can label it, and you can put a really good label on it. OK, this is the simulation part. Uh, this is the, the uh, um, they walked us through how they generate scenes for their Unreal Engine Simulator Uh, that they can also use as a source of training data. Now, simulated training data, uh, it can be super useful. It can provide a lot of sort of diversity of that you can't get other ways by gathering data. You have to be really careful with it because neural networks are really good at figuring out that you're showing them simulated data. And then drawing different conclusions than they would, uh, if the data was real. So, um, you know, I look at this scene and it's obvious to me, this is a simulation. It's pretty good simulation, but this is to me, obviously. So how do I know that the light is a little too fat, flat, the colors are a little too primary. The atmospheric's a little wrong. There's all these very subtle visual cues that you get neural networks learn all of that kind of stuff. So. You can't use simulated data as a substitute for real data, at least not today. Uh, There will be a point where neural networks are good enough to get the gist of what you're trying to get to when you show them a piece of data. You know, they'll be able to extract the abstraction from it and learn from that without having to be optically accurate. But we're not there right now. Um, So because we're not there right now, you have to be careful about using simulation. So typically the thing you do is you mix a little simulated data in with a larger amount of real data so that it doesn't compromise, so that your neural network doesn't start relying on the fact that it knows, oh, this scene is simulated, right? And they, and essentially, you know, if you're driving down the road and the car, the car, <laughs> the neural network has learned, well, oh, I'm not in the simulation. Uh, you know, I can ignore all that stuff that I learned in simulation, right?
2: <laughs>
1: uh Anyway, um, actually, let me do something here. Just a second. We're running long, so
0: yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah. Okay. So what's interesting and important? So. The gist of the sim of, of, I think, if I recall correctly, what we get shown here is how they go about automatically generating simulated data, which is a really interesting uh, aspect of this. Like generating simulated scenes is super labor intensive if human beings have to drive. So, much like the auto labeler, uh, Tesla's gone to a significant amount of effort to make these diverse, interesting scenes. That are very richly detailed that don't take very many human hours in order to create it and they leverage the data they get out of the auto labeler to do this right so the auto labeler drives all these roads and it builds this 3d ground truth well if I want to build a model, I can I can build a thing that basically takes that 3D ground truth and puts simulated fire hydrants and pedestrians and trees and whatever in all the places I want. And then if I want to, I can go through and I can vary the, the shrubbery. I can vary the line markings or whatnot in order to add diversity to the set and add, um, you know, uh, simulated but useful amount of diversity to the training data that I have. And uh, so... Uh, this is, you know, this is a, this is like where they want to end up. They want to be able to like create these, you know, rich, complex, uh, scenes, uh, that they can include in their training data. And he's explaining here, um, you know, we start with these trajectories that vehicles have driven and the ground truth from them. So we have lots of different trajectories. We take those, uh, those trajectories, uh, what we learned from the auto labeler. And now, uh, you know, we can basically fill in details to create a scene. And then we can, in this scene, we can vary environmental characteristics. So we can add or subtract water, change the vegetation, add, remove cars, pedestrians, atmospheric effects, rain. Right? These are all variations on that. they can change the ground truth. Like, you know, on the left here, we have a trend. We, we have one of those intersection traversal maps that was there. And they can, if they want to, and this was one that they changed. You can see that uh, the sign on the right shows uh, you can go straight. Yet uh, That is, there's a lane that goes straight through and there's one that goes straight and turns right. And on the left, we have the map that goes with that but you can also change the signage, right? You can say, I want an example of this network where the connectivity is different. And you can change the sign, change the markings on the pavement, change the interconnectivity. And now you have a new sample it's kind of like the real world that maybe it wasn't an, an, an intersection kind that you wanted to have that was underrepresented in your data. And so you decide that you're going to do that, or maybe you just randomly vary it. I mean, I showed two examples here, but in the presentation, he cranks through like 12 mm. <laughs> ways that they can do, but they, they can procedurally vary this intersection to add diversity to the data set. Uh, so, to go through this quickly. I'm sure a lot of people find this really interesting, but this video is running really long. So I'm going to move a little faster. Um, he's uh, so this is basically walking through how they can, they can build really big models of, uh, interconnected roads in simulation so that they can, they can, uh, they can have large databases that are consistent in a sense of simulated data. So there, uh, he shows an example of San Francisco, they have a bunch of intersections. Um, he's spending some time talking about, you know, how uh, how, you, uh, how you put all this stuff together, you know, because you're building lots of little t- bits and they're tiles and you want to tile them together into a bigger simulated world that you can then, Uh, use for either generating data or you can also test autopilot in this. You can run autopilot in simulation in these environments and see how it will behave. That's another useful thing that you can do. Or you can take a clip of some interaction. This is something that they showed us at the first AI day where you can, they can take a clip of some interesting scene where the autopilot was doing something weird. They can convert that into a simulation. They can run autopilot in simulation in that thing. And then you can vary stuff. You can add or subtract some pedestrians, change the lighting angle, w- rearrange the signage, change the pavement. And you can see how that affects, uh, you know, whether autopilot made that mistake or had that behavior in that particular situation. So, uh the le- on the left here, he's, we're basically being shown the architecture they have for this super simulation builder that builds, you know, these simulated worlds on a really massive scale. And in this case, they're walking us through how they have a whole bunch of extracted ground truth that the auto labeler e- extracted in China. Uh, sorry, in <laughs> San Francisco, <laughs> I was thinking Chinatown, in San Francisco, and. Uh, essentially was able to sort of put that together into like a holistic set that they can look at from any angle. They can drive any way and they can change any characteristic that they want. They've got this big, it's pretty impressive to be able to, I mean, down here, they show us like they can do a lot of San Francisco. And I think he mentioned that they generate, they can regenerate this overnight. So essentially, you know, if they're like, Oh yeah, we want, uh, Wildfires, (laughs) Wildfires, <laughs> you know, we want San Francisco covered in snow smoke with like an, a baleful orange sun over the horizon. You know, let's generate all that ground truth. You know, you can rerun the thing and you can generate basically San Francisco and have a ton of data in that environment. I just made up the wildfire thing, but just as an example of how you might want a large geography that you vary and then extract a lot of data from. Okay, this is the data engine thing. And so you had asked about like, how do they choose what data that they want? And so uh, I think this woman's name is Kim Park and she walks us through uh, this uh, example. Kate
0: Kate Park, I think.
1: Kate Park. Yeah. Okay. Um, she walks us through this example of like how they select data. So this one is, um, so autopilot uh, FSD is driving through this thing and it labels this car over here on the left stopped for traffic. That's what that late, that thing is, that car's actually parked <laughs> right now. You could look at this scene and you could see how it would be easy to mistake this. Just in fact, when I, for- when I saw this the first time, when the, in the first presentation, I thought it was stopped for traffic. It totally looks like it stopped at an intersection, but it's parked there. So that, but that's an error. Like, you know, uh, Autopilot should look at this thing and know that that's a parked car. So how do you fix this problem? Well, the data engine has an answer, which is let's go find lots of examples of where uh, Autopilot thought the car was parked or thought it was stopped for traffic when it was actually parked. And uh, so you can so you can you can build a trigger where you you know the human team basically looks at this stuff. And for instance, the way you might do this trigger is say that um, say that the label changes as the car goes through, like, you know, FSD is driving through the scene and it labels the car, you know, parked, 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 or it stopped for traffic, stop for traffic, stop for traffic. And at some point it decides it's parked, right? So you push a trigger out to the fleet and you say, send me examples where you thought that it was stopped for traffic, but then later you decided it was parked, right? So you push that out to the fleet and then you get a whole bunch of examples back that meet your criteria for your trigger that you sent out there. So then you'd have human beings go through these and curate them to see, you know, first of all, are they, were they was it really parked? <laughs> all right. Cause occasionally the trigger will misfire. And sometimes mm. the thing you're looking for is kind of hard to specify in a trigger. So you'll mm. send a trigger out that over captures and maybe you capture you know, 10 times or 100 times more stuff. And then human beings will walk through that stuff and throw away all the stuff that doesn't actually meet the intent of the trigger. So you'll, you'll pull that down. So this, is, this slide is they're mining the fleet, for examples. Uh, they, they get 13,900 clips for this, right? And I think this line, data alone improves the challenge case, it is basically saying we just capture this data we run it through the auto labeler it's accurately labeled we add that to the training set we retrain the network problem solved right so that's not the only way they choose to collect data but i think the data engine is probably a really large portion probably the lion's share of new data collection is them basically saying here's a problem that we identified, it's a systematic problem that we have at a high enough frequency that we care about it. It's high on our list of things we wanna fix. How can we gather more data to train the network so that it doesn't make this error, so that it's more accurate in this particular situation? You go out to the fleet, you get the examples back, you create them, you auto label them, you use them for the training data and then you see if it fixes the problem right and part of it would be you can rerun example like you can rerun autopilot on these raw this this all of these clips mm-hmm. you can rerun an auto you know they they have a, a rack racks and racks of these hardware threes that they use for doing regression testing so you do regression testing and you add these erroneous clips to the regression test and you see did it fix the problem and if it does fix a the problem then you push it out to the fleet. And maybe you have a monitoring tag on that where it keeps an eye on this thing. It looks to see if if you're still getting the erroneous things. And if not, then you say, okay, we solved that one and you move on to the other problem. And and they probably at any given time have tens or hundreds of these things they're simultaneously working on. They're pulling clips on, you know, to to build the background seeing if it fixes the problem, revising and so on. Uh, they, They spend a, so data engine perfects network, right? You turn, you get, you, you find the data that you needed to make it better. And you add that to the training corpus and then things get better there. Incidentally, there will also be times when, you know, when they, they went from the, the ISP processed video input to the photon count video input. So prior to going to the photon count stuff, the samples that were getting from the field were all ISP post-process video. And so when they decided that they wanted to go to the photon count stuff they have to recapture all that so they so they have to rebuild their corpus from scratch so that would be periodically they probably have these foundational changes they want to make where they're just like oh yeah you know we need there's this new thing we need and we need to recapture all of the clips and for some entities that might be kind of a disaster for tesla it's just hard work Mm -hmm. right because Their capture system, their ability to ingest, label, and utilize data because it's constantly growing. Their ability to rebuild uh, it—you know—quickly it grows and grows also. So it's easy for them to change their mind.
0: I'm guessing they have to keep track of all of their kind of past. I mean, I mean, what they've captured or what if they have to rebuild right their entire video data set then. They want to yeah, I mean, have the diversity of those clips. So they have to
1: see. Yeah, you'll want to maintain yeah. metadata on all the stuff that you ever mm-hmm. did and yeah. why you, you know, what you captured, what was in it, why you yeah. did it. Like you can save, even if you decide that you don't want to save all the labeled data on all of those examples, you can save the metadata so that you understand the structure of the corpus that you were using to train your, to get to a particular result. So if you yeah. want to construct a new corpus that has a similar statistical distribution of phenomena you know you can do that because even though even if you don't save the data you save the metadata that tells you what was in all of these frames
2: yeah
0: makes sense
1: okay yeah some more stuff about the data. we've talked about the data engine before yeah. so do you have any questions
0: on this stuff that no it, i mean data engine it makes it's pretty pretty simple or straightforward yeah
1: yeah, well, it's been talked about enough. I It's it's a it, it's a little subtle, um, you know why uh, why it's such a clever idea, why it's such a powerful idea for doing, particularly what Tesla is trying to do, and how the auto labeler leverages the data engine. You know, because you know there was a time when the limiter on the data engine was like how fast you could label the data with your army of human labelers, and the auto labeler basically totally levels up that entire capability. so to the extent that it does that the data engine becomes more powerful because you know this this thing back here like i kept thinking i misread this where is this here
0: 13,900 videos like that's
1: a mad like that's a monstrous amount of training data it's just mind-boggling like it's it's so large it's yeah. it's like it's bigger than, tra- than real world only it's like i don't know where else in the world do you go and get thirteen thousand nine hundred videos or de- to solve one minor problem
2: you yeah, know? yeah yeah so
1: like it it's just like their their data generation labeling ingestion capacity it is just like unreal
0: yeah i mean it's interesting because a few years back you would you know, they would send out triggers, get videos, but you'd have to have like, you know, human labelers, you know, like dissect this and it would just take a lot more time. Probably than now you just stick all these videos, like there's this auto labeling, you know, engine. It just, there just seems to, they seem to be making use of the data, you know, in a productive manner.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to me, like, is in, is the, like, I don't know if I'm the target audience for this kind of stuff. I, I, I kind of understand a little bit of the implications of what is going on. Like, this is the money shot of this one, right? Like, 13,000 <laughs> views. like, oh my God. Like, if you know what goes into a clip, this is like, this video is, you know, even if it's only 10 seconds times 39 frames, times, uh, uh, times 36 frames per second, times eight cameras, right? It's, what the, it's 39, it's like 4,000 frames of video. You know, for each, is that right? 4,000. Yeah, it's like 4,000 frames of video, time 4,000 times uh, 13,900. What, that's like 50,000 <laughs> or 50 million? Like, it's nuts. It's, yeah, it's 50 million. It's 50 million <laughs> images, <laughs> right? For one relatively minor problem that they were trying to solve. It's crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we got through it. That was it. <laughs> awesome.
0: <laughs> we did it. We, we finished. Yeah, um, so where
1: are we at? Two hours and 26 minutes for the second well, pl- yeah, plus Yeah. Plus, I'm going to put this as one half, video. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three and oh, man. Did you, so actually, the dojo years. video, I told you, the longer we make the video, sometimes the more they get viewed. The mm-hmm. dojo video actually got viewed um, 70,000 something, oh, above almost 80,000 times, I think, because um, sometimes like... If you make but it how really many of long... those people
1: were still awake for
0: the second <laughs> half?
1: Right? Like, YouTube can't is... tell you how many of them.
0: Yeah, dozed yeah. That's true. No, but sometimes when you make it long and then p- if people watch it, actually, then YouTube will push it out more because the view time is long, actually. It's yeah. kind of strange how it works. But, but you um, don't run ads, yeah. right? Um, well, it's not really related to ads. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I run occasional ads, but it's more related. They want... People to be watching longer or the longest possible. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so actually, um, on YouTube, sometimes the longer you go, the better. But yeah, if they you just can keep, they, they want to make sure whatever you're doing, questions.
1: you're not on Twitter or you're not on Facebook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Thanks, James. This was this was incredibly helpful. I think. Um, um, yeah, it, it's it's it reinforces. I think you know. Um, every time I, I dive into this with you, just um, it just feels like Tesla is doing the right things. They're pushing things forward. They're making choices that make sense. You know, with whether it's hardware approaches or software data, um, these things actually and they work together. They are synergies between you know a lot of these different you know parts of the puzzle. Yeah,
1: they, they're what they do technically makes more sense to me than like any. I, I every other entity that i've observed every other yeah. corporate entity at scale you always see a certain amount of like nonsensical bs which is probably driven by you know all kinds of non-engineering not 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 making the product better not being more efficient not moving faster kinds of decisions that come out of it and like tesla they're like the only entity that where that just doesn't seem to happen no matter how big they get they don't start doing stuff that doesn't make sense from an engineering standpoint. Yeah. That's Um, super impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, one thought I was having was, did you hear that Elon Musk, like, suppose I, mean, this is what some articles are saying was he brought over like 50 Tesla software engineers to Twitter to revoke view code and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because if you would have said that like five years ago or something, it's like, it'd be so crazy to think, you know, this, so-called auto company would be headed over to schooling one of the, the internet boys. One on of the le- yeah, leading cutting-edge so-called software social media companies with software. Uh, there's,
1: there's <laughs> all you know. I mean, it could be that he just wanted a code review by some people he trusted and who he That's understood true, yeah. and who knew what he wanted, and so he just had him walk through the system. It could be he wanted architectural opinions. Yeah. Um. It it could be that there's super useful stuff that they're doing at Twitter, like tools or projects or stuff and he wants the tesla guys to come over and say hey look they're doing this right and they're doing that right and this guy's really smart and talk to him about that kind yeah. of stuff. like synergy can be good yeah i can just- i can imagine all kinds of reasons yeah that you would want to cross pollinate those two and not all of them are just for the benefit of
0: twitter that's true i mean it's uh it just strikes me as as tesla has come a, a long way with software you know yeah. um over the years. Yeah, it's.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're definitely an A-league player for, um, for doing software development at this point. Yeah. 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 But the thing that you said about how, like, you know, I mean, Twitter's a software company, right? Exactly. These (laughs) like software. That's the thing that they really do. And, uh, yeah, having an auto company come there, especially, you know, you see the, the sort, sort of apoplectic failure of the other auto majors, like yeah. trying to do relatively, oh, it's a series telling me that I have a reminder for apoplectic now. <laughs> I'm impressed that it got that word. That um, yeah, you look at it like, you know, it, it's a major problem for Volkswagen, right? Not being able to yeah. get software going.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, James, um, I'm going to let you go. Um, I know it's probably dinner time over there. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to, actually, you've, you've been on a few episodes, other podcasts. I want to have people watch them if they're interested. So yesterday you were in Far- Farzad's channel with I think Dr. Scott Walker and um, uh, Dr. Know-It-All, right? Um, was that yesterday? Yes, that's yeah, right, yeah. Scott Walker. So um, yeah, I'll go ahead and try to link to that. Um, I'm going to watch that on my flight next week to California. And then, are you going to be on um Alien Space's channel? Is it Monday or so? Yeah, it's Monday. Okay, so people can check, uh, look out for that uh, podcast as well. Yeah, actually, I love it when you're on uh, uh, like as many places as possible because I, I, it gives me more things to watch and to learn from. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I actually like... I can't believe um, that you want
1: to hear hear my voice more. No, it's
0: actually interesting because I'm not really like a big like watcher of other Tesla content. It's -hmm. just, I rather watch like non Tesla, non-related stuff to get my mind kind of learning about various topics. Probably a little bit Um,
1: easier to be present when you don't have to be part of the interaction too. Like I find when I
0: rewatch stuff that
1: my perception of the conversation is really different than my memory of it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that when you're here, In front of the camera doing stuff like you're in a different mental state than when you can just sit back pause and and think about stuff you know you absorb it better and it makes more sense
0: yeah 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 but like with technical or with with fsc ai tesla stuff it's just it's one of those like priority topics i feel um all right james take care um thanks again on behalf of everyone watching yeah we all appreciate it all right we'll see ya
1: take care